Welcome to A Retro Perspective, a video game podcast that takes a look at long-running franchises one game at a time. This season, we're taking a look at Nintendo's flagship IP, The Legend of Zelda. This is our final episode this season, so if you're just now joining us, we recommend beginning your journey with episode one. With that out of the way, I'm Carly. And I'm Kyler. Let's get started. What is it about Zelda games that has us coming back for more? How is it that you can play a dozen of them and still sit on the edge of your seat for just a whisper of a new game? Depending on who you ask, you'll get a myriad of different answers. There's the NES generation of gamers who still feel betrayed by Ocarina of Time, the Ocarina of Time generation that feels betrayed by Twilight Princess. So who did Breath of the Wild betray? In some ways, Breath of the Wild is sort of a far-off dream the type of game that fans of the series hoped for, but never imagined would ever come to fruition. The series had fallen into such a rut after Skyward Sword that it seemed as if modern gaming had outgrown it. Nintendo had been passed by, a relic of a bygone era. It seems that Nintendo recognized the need for soul-searching just as much as its fans did. In Breath of the Wild, you see the footprints of modern, open-world gaming. Skyrim and Monolith Soft certainly made their impact. But Eiji Numa and team looked at their own back catalog for inspiration too. They stripped The Legend of Zelda back down to its 1986 bones. Suddenly, after years of series conventions slowly built into an albatross, nothing was off the table. For some fans, maybe too much was left on the cutting room floor. The moment-to-moment -moment gameplay of Breath of the Wild seems a far cry from the series' most beloved 3D iterations, its loss of traditional dungeons perhaps a bridge too far. But it is hard to overstate how interconnected the game is, each flaw connected to an inspiring victory. As a sequel sits on the horizon, it's difficult to concoct a wish list of what it will be, as if one wrong decision will send the Jenga tower crashing down. Not since Ocarina has Nintendo had such an enviable problem. It crafted a singular masterpiece, and now it must start again. So before we get into talking about potential sequels or, you know, the history of this game and everything it draws back on, you know, as usual, we'll start with what we liked about the game. And I'll start off by saying that I guess this is sort of the Zelda game of my dreams, and I never really thought that we would get it, I guess I would say. I had always wanted something that was sort of interconnected and sprawling. I love the art style. I think like to me, this game fulfills like the sort of implied promise of Ocarina that one day we would reach a point where like the interconnected sort of choose your own adventure 2D worlds would be brought to life in 3D. And so I think like the thing that is most exciting to me about this game is that before it released, Nintendo was in such a place where I think a lot of us wondered if they had forgotten what made a lot of their series really impactful and like the things that made them popular in the first place. And it felt like they were really getting bogged down in sort of, I don't want to say like gimmicks, but yeah. maybe that, you know, like you can kind of define like each Zelda game by like, that's the one with the wolf. That's the one with the ocean. Um, and other series of theirs had also kind of started to drift into that territory. And I think like when you put Breath of the Wild on the list of Zelda games, it's like, oh, that's just a completely different game in a lot of ways. And so I think for me, it's, it's just inspiring that they made something where they really 
showed no fear and they really sacrificed stuff and like stuff that felt really indispensable to the series, like part of its core identity. They got rid of a lot of it. And I think then you have a game that is still very true to that vision. And I think it also just shows sort of how flexible the series really is after so many years of it starting to feel like it was very unflexible and very set in its ways. I think for me, it was a hard game to understand until I actually played it. And I played it the day it came out. I bought my Switch. I was in a Target at <laughs> six in the morning waiting in line uh, before I had to go to class, like getting my Switch. And, you know, when I saw people playing it or I saw videos beforehand, I was also very nervous because I didn't totally get the appeal. I didn't really... The things that I always liked about Zelda were like side quests, like Majora's Mask type stuff and like... Uh, going to new places and seeing really cool stuff and so I was like okay like all these mountains look cool but kind of looks a little monotonous and like where's all this other stuff that I care about like are there going to be towns and whatnot and so like I was definitely excited because like wow like the production value had so skyrocketed from previous games like it looked like a modern game it looked very like serious it looked like there's lots of things you can do in it but watching people like play the great plateau i was like really kind of nervous about what sort of was beyond that and i have to say that like once i started playing the game everything changed for me and it just put me in such a state that I sort of like couldn't stop playing it. Like all I wanted to do was just like go into this world and like take walks and climb things. And so I don't really know when I think about what I like about the game, I don't really think of it in how I think of like terms of like most Zelda games of like, Oh, I love the story. Or I love the dungeons. or I love this moment when, because all those, this moment when like, they're all like your own personal stories. And so I love the game just because I think I love the game. I don't think I really love the game because I'm a Zelda fan. Like, I've always wanted to play open world games, but I haven't because sometimes it's just the consoles I've owned. Like, I didn't own a PS3 for a really long time, and I got that to play JRPGs. I've never owned an Xbox. We had one as kids. We had a 360, like, a long time ago. But I just was so not really interested in, like, Elder Scrolls and, like, all kinds of, like, your typical... Uh, open world games because I don't really it's just I'm not really into like western art styles and I don't really like realistic looking games um and just like being like a buff dude with like armor who like I don't know like shoots prostitutes in GTA it just didn't really appeal to me <laughs> but I was like wow I really hope I get to play like a colorful sort of like anime inspired uh, game that's like feels really like open you know I want to like play an animated movie come to life which is like why I enjoy a game like Mino Kuni so much because it like it touches on that sort of dream for me and I feel like this is just like that but even more so is like the appeal of the game to me is that it's a very beautifully colored very sort of soft like dreamy game and you just get to exist in it and so like it fulfills a dream of mine which is like getting to sort of live in an animated film <laughs> and like be a part of it. And so that's sort of the energy of this game to me is like it sort of gives you the freedom to like take a walk in like this really beautiful world. And that's what I enjoy the most is just like letting my mind sort of clear out and just like scaling cliffs and like 
turning over rocks and not really even knowing why I'm doing it, but just like being possessed by like this desire to just like keep going like forward more and more. And in that way, you know, it's like very special to me. <laughs> it's, and it's, I wish I could go back and experience it for the first time again, because where my brain <laughs> led me, my heart led <laughs> me, uh, the paths I took and the ways, and I'll talk about this more, um, but my specific memories in this game, they're not something that you can ever really recreate again. Like, it's one of the rare games, in my opinion, where, like, the first time you play it is a really special thing. Anyways, yeah. that's my spiel. <laughs> Sorry, I love this game. <laughs> can uh, you tell? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> this really is... I don't think an anomaly is the right word, but it's like, it, it feels like it exists in its own universe. Um, I've, I've used like, you know, I've, I've kind of almost measured previous Zelda games on like the level of intelligence that they're kind of operating at. And it's not mean to me that they're strictly better than one another or something like that. But I just find like the level of degree and thoughtfulness that went into their vision and the core of what they were working with, I think was like stronger than another. And what I mean is like, something like Wind Waker compared to say Twilight Princess and Skyward Sword. It's like you might like Twilight Princess and Skyward Sword for like different reasons, but I find that like Wind Waker's core vision operates on a level that I think was well, far more well thought out compared to those later two games. And so on a, on like on a similar level, I think it's, I think when it, I keep wanting to like think about other elements of the game that, which maybe aren't, as up to snuff and in my mind they, they don't they, they almost just kind of completely fade away like yeah i'd want them to be better but they fade away um compared to the utter the absolute might of the game of like of just the gameplay and the sheer amount of uh work that went into you know staying committed to you know as you kind of put it like a singular vision and making sure every single facet of the game like was was worked into that vision and that vision really ultimately just being this kind of just, just freeform exploration and really being a lot like the original game. And yet at the same time, it's still really quite different from it too. And it's weird. And so trying to just think of it relative to those games without even diving into comparisons. Yeah, it's weird. It really is its own kind of game. It is an open world game. And um, I'm kind of with you on what you were getting at. We weren't, we, you know, I wasn't collectively exposed to that much in the way of open world games. I think I'd had, um, let's see, I think... In my mind, I've, I've played Assassin's Creed 2, a game that it's like I remember well, but I just, every time I picked it up, I'm like, uh, it's okay. Uh, and um, Oblivion, a game that I love for the wrong reasons. <laughs> and um, I, I, I enjoy in Degrees as an open world game. And then when I went to play Skyrim, I couldn't, I really couldn't get into it, um, strangely enough. I really couldn't. And kind of, and kind of for similar reasons as to kind of you as well. But I think it has to do with, I think, for one, we were just, we were raised on, on Japanese games. We're very used to games with these really kind of tight design mm -hmm. sensibilities. And so it's just tough to play a game that like, that is not only just loose in its nature, but like you can feel like it's not an openness, but a looseness to it. And a kind of looseness to it that like, well, in the case of Oblivion, I just, it made the game funny, which was not the intent. <laughs> and in the case of Skyrim, where it got a little more polished, I'm like, eh, this isn't what I came for. <laughs> and... <laughs> And, um, and which is, which is weird and maybe someday I'll get into it, but I just find that this kind of meeting of both an like a practically extreme commitment to, uh, to like a really like a true open world kind of philosophy while still somehow being a very tightly ga designed game. It really is 
um, a dream game in a way. Uh, just the the nature of playing a game that has a lot of things that you can be you can just be really thoughtful about, and the game um, like ninety five ninety nine percent of the time is going to reward you for for thinking about that. Mm-hmm. Sometimes to its to its detriment, but that's how committed the game is to allowing you to do just about whatever you want uh, within its you know within its own constraints. Yeah, and it just doesn't it just doesn't feel like there's there's constraints in that regard. And um, yeah, I liked I liked how you were calling just your first time playing the game. And that's something I, this is, I think my third time through at this point, because I did a master mode playthrough um, once that once that DLC came out. Um, and this, I, I really made it a point. Like I know there's no, kind of like playing the original Legend of Zelda, knowledge is power. And you really can't like, you can't just be like, oh, uh, you know, any, like hardy durians are overpowered or something like that. Like you can't, (laughs) that doesn't leave your brain, but, but like I, you know, there's things where it's like, I made a conscious choice to go after some of the main quests to get like additional functionality before I started like, you know, just doing things. But beyond even that, there were things where there were so many times where it's like, Oh, these are like, I remember doing these three things. These are my priority. I, and I'm just like, oh, that looks cool. I'm going to do that. And I just forget what I'm doing. Yeah. <laughs> I completely forget. And when I try to play in a way that's like, oh, I'm going to try to complete all this stuff. It's just, it's overwhelming. But I think in like a really, really good way that it's like, I can just, I can jump into this game and expect to just walk in a direction and, and just run across things. The closest we ever really got to that, again, was, was Wind Waker. Yeah, uh, something that I think, unfortunately, in light of this, um, kind of ages it a bit poorly. It's it's sad to say, but it's it's kind of true in a way. It's just a game that didn't get to realize its vision as effectively as as this game did, and which is a remarkable feat in its own right. How much Breath of the Wild does, and yeah, I I love it for it. There's there's more I have to say in the specifics, but just I, I kind of just like an up, upfront assessment. Yeah, I really do adore this game. Yeah, I think like the biggest thing is like that the game is really intent on removing any barrier that makes you have to stop just like pushing forward on your control stick at any moment. Like that's something you will be doing the entire game and until you reach the edge of the map or you just get killed, like you could just kind of do that the whole game. Like as long as it's not raining, you hit a mountain, you just keep pressing up and you just like have enough stuff, you have enough stamina, like you climb a mountain. like. You want to jump off the mountain, you just jump off the mountain and you just like glide down. And I think like those two mechanics are like the biggest thing about this game and why I think that, I don't know, has a really different feel, I think. And this is more me going off of reviewers and like critics and whatnot um, and sort of the reaction of other people who have like been impacted by this game and, and, and like compared it to other open world games. I really wanted to play a bit of Skyrim before we did this episode, but unfortunately I didn't have enough time between all the hours that this game demands if you want to like play it correctly. I ended up not finishing all the Divine Beasts on this playthrough or Ganon, mainly just because like I'm actually enjoying this playthrough so much and I treasure it so much that I don't want to ruin certain moments. Um, I already kind of like climbed too many towers and I'm upset about it. <laughs> Um, But anyways, but I I think that's a huge point is like 
I think that a huge world can feel very stifling and very sort of like lethargic if too many things sort of get in your way. And with this game, it's like there's a tree in front of you, climb it or cut it down. Like it's just a, it, there's so much forward momentum in this game. And it's about like, instead of asking you, oh, how am I going to get around that? You just, you can decide, do you want to go around it? Do you want to go somewhere else? Or do you want to just climb it and get to the top? And like the whole game is really based on climbing, getting to high places, looking around, seeing what's around you, and then deciding where you're going to glide off. Without those two things, like the game's just a pile of land masses. I think that's what I didn't understand. What you can't understand really until you play it is you kind of look at it and you go, well, what is there to do in this game? And like the answer is you climb a lot of mountains and you glide around a lot and you walk around a lot and it's really freaking fun. And I think it's it's fun in that way that playing with an action replay was fun. You know, like putting on like super jumps and like all of these things. Because in older games before like the open world games took off, you know, you were very aware of like the barriers. And I think in some way, like Ocarina of Time feels like a mysterious game because you know that in the context of this sort of dream imagined world, there's more out there. It's not been created by the game developers, but there's more out there. And a lot of like the mysterious identity of a lot of these games, it was kind of based on like the hidden secrets, like what you could find within them or like boundary breaking and stuff like that. And I think that that kind of comes from this desire to just like keep going like whatever lies beyond, you just want to like have more game and more game and more game just like based on this desire for like the world to sort of like never end or like maybe to even just understand it more fully. Hmm. And so the idea of like being able to climb these mountains, which is very impossible and very ridiculous, who cares? But the <laughs> whole idea about it, I think is it's something that you don't, you're not allowed to do that in video games. You're not allowed to just climb over boundaries. You're not allowed to just glide over boundaries and especially not Nintendo games. Yeah. And so having that ability, I think, is just sort of like a sandbox child dream and getting it to come to life in this quality. You know, I, I really just think that's one of the most impactful parts of the game is that it gives you really true unprecedented freedom to sort of express this like weird physical impulse to sort of like conquer the earth. I know it's like very deeply like meta and philosophical, <laughs> but I also think that it's hard to explain the joy of the game by basing it just on mechanics. You can't really base it on story because there isn't much of it there. Like the story just exists as sort of this little glue to bind things together. The story is really there so that you have some point on your map that you're supposed to walk to that you will get lost on the way of going there. <laughs> it's just about setting little waypoints and then seeing something else and then eventually going, oh, that's right, I was doing something, like, wasn't I? And eventually you get there. But, you know, if you just play the game straight through, which is why I didn't want to finish it, if you just, like, try to go from point to point to point and just beat Divine Beasts and just go challenge Ganon, you'll probably be under strength, but also just like, that's not really the fun of the game. Yeah. The fun of the game isn't like going from warp point to warp point to warp point, which sometimes I do just to like, you know, it's like, 
a little house cleaning just to like handle my business <laughs> and like upgrade some stuff, buy more arrows, whatever. But like, that's not really what the game is about, in my opinion. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, there's a lot to there's a lot to say here. It's it's a lot to get into. There's a part of me that's just like immediately want to get into like details because it's like I don't know how to even handle talking about the broader scope of the game just for simply i don't know you described it you described it best just with the what i was you know what i was in my mind calling like the ebb and flow which is the idea of getting to high places making an assessment and then basically descending and um it sounds so simple and it doesn't sound interesting and yet the very the very nature a lot of it has to do with the landscape design but it's simply just the matter of how you get around and and yeah the fact that the only real thing that's going to get in your way is whether you've made the right preparations, whether you have the right tools, and whether you have good enough stamina or hearts, depending on what you're trying to take on. And um, and even if you don't have those things, as long as you have something that helps you circumvent in some capacity, you can you can get even out of the, like even through the most like extreme circumstances. So it's just um, for a game to be interesting in its own right, it has to be. I try, I try to explain this the best way I can. It has to be challenging, but what I mean not in so much as it needs to be hard, like a difficult game, but rather to say it has there has to be there has to be something to overcome in its own way. That seems kind of contradictory to the nature of an open world game, uh, and why I think Breath of the Wild succeeds so much in doing this is that the very nature of looking at the landscape, knowing the abilities that you have available to you, and just the pure like your just your movement, the ability like the ability to climb anything. Um, and then to glide down from it is something that you look at and in a meet you look at, you know, you look at something like a mountain just off in the distance or you see something past that and you immediately start thinking about how you're going to route your way around it. If you want to, you could take a horse, ride a ride a trail and just kind of breeze on through. And it's just, and which is, I think, in my opinion, I think it's a great I think that's kind of brilliant in its own right. You and I both were on the same page of just like we saw it and we're just like, I want to get there. And so we just take a straight shot. Yeah. Even if that means going up the most extreme cliffs to do it. And we're just like, oh, I uh, have some stories <laughs> with that. Oh, <laughs> uh, there a lot of a lot of just the great just little moments that kind of happen and that are. Yeah. Like you said, just kind of hard to hard to kind of distinctly remember. But just like think this things that we knew we kind of experienced is just those those just kind of overcoming adversity where you come upon just certain physical features in the land and you're just like there's got to be some good way around and up to the top of this like there's got to be some way that can get up and around it the only way i can describe that design is seamless because it just seems like oh they put the mountain here and i'm sure they maybe like put ledges here or there but no they had to like think about the fact that they had to like maybe put certain lips in the rock face here and there that would either allow or even have it not in that way disallow the player from coming up certain ways or simply make it harder to do so. Like there was consideration put into every piece in the environment that it's, it's like crazy how the game in some ways you think it almost feels like procedurally generated because you're like, how could anyone actually design this? And then you like climb whatever thing you're looking at or you like get around it somehow and you go, no, like this is here for a reason. Yeah. But also like I, such a vague, <laughs> almost impressionistic reason that it's hard to conceptualize people like carving out these rock faces intentionally. Yeah, it's it is. I cannot wrap my mind around the design of a world that has to simultaneously strike. Impressionistic is a great description. That is that's a dead on word for it. 
something that something that is so meant to be organic in its own right and then yet at the same time um it just fits like a glove when you're just when you're playing it and you're just like like you don't think about the fact that it's like hey if these you know little lips and the rock face were just absent climbing this mountain so much of climbing would be impossible even with your just base like stamina bar and and even harder like and even even with the with all of like those upgrades it's still fairly difficult with improved stamina and everything and it's just like you just don't you don't think about it it's just the nature of how it's everything is laid out there is some capacity like some way in which you can reliably uh access something as long as i think even especially early game if you're just a little patient too there's a lot of things that you can do and it's just it's crazy you just don't you don't think about it and i mean really the the mark of any you know much like i said about like a film editor but like the same way with a good designer is like you don't you don't notice that it's there you're just playing the game and you're you're very naturally doing something and you're not thinking about those things uh and i think it's just nothing short of just kind of a masterpiece in that regard yeah you know this is actually something uh that I made a note of when I was playing Luigi's Mansion 3. And I think that game does similar things to this one, which is uh, it gives you your full tool set pretty early on, uh, not as early on as Breath of the Wild does. But what it does is you'll hit certain gems in Luigi's Mansion 3 and you'll go, I don't know how to get that. Maybe I'm missing a tool. I guess I'll come back here later. And then you go and play a different floor. And like in order to actually progress like the story, like the game level itself, you'll realize that you have to figure out some sort of solution to a problem using the skill set that you have. And once you crack that, there are instances where you go, oh, I can use this to do that? That's how you get such and such gem. So it's like the game sort of gatekeeps you through your own knowledge. Like you actually Hmm. could have gotten a lot of those things earlier, but you just didn't realize you could because you didn't understand the capability of what you have until then, say, like a story section of the game in which you knew that there had to be some sort of way to progress because it's the story (laughs) and you have to continue (laughs) the game somehow. And so it forced you to really think harder and really play around with all your options. And then you discover something new. And I think Breath of the Wild is a lot in that way where the first time you're playing it, the real limitation is just generally like your own knowledge. And even though the game is very sprawling, it does have these like little moments where you remember that these developers 100% know what they're doing. They know how to introduce Hmm. concepts and sort of build on them in baby steps. And one of the things I really took note of was um, you go into the Yiga clan hideout um, in the Gerudo desert and you get into this final room after like dodging these guards and you're just standing in this room and you're like, where do I go? It doesn't seem like there's any other way. And I know what I came here for and it's not here. So surely there must be something else. Well, because the game has been training you to scan everything and pull up chests and like use all of your different abilities, you'll see chests in the ground and you'll go, oh, I'm going to use Magnesis and pull Ah, those chests up. And it's when you hit Magnesis on the chest that then you'll see very obviously this whole (laughs) wall that's suddenly pink and just asking you for, for you to do something to it. And like, yes, the chests are reward, but really the chests are there just to like stimulate that. Oh, cool. I see that. I'm used to this feedback loop. I'm going to investigate that. And then that investigation leads you to the solution of the puzzle. Those are small things where like, they know what they have trained you to do, and now they're manipulating it in different ways. 
Yeah. And I think you could, what you could potentially say and look at is that they're so smart about design that maybe I wish that there were more sort of bottlenecked areas within the sense of the world, not just like shrines and not just the divine beasts where they force you to use your skills in that way. Yeah. And we can talk more about that and sort of like the criticisms of the game. But I also think that I would be remiss not to note that like this game was delayed and part of the big reason it was delayed for a couple of years was because they were battling with this physics engine, which is really the cornerstone mm. of the game. And it, you know, as much as like the climbing and gliding is a huge part of the game, it's like that's one pillar, that's like one huge column, and then the physics the physics system, you know, then affects everything else. And it sort of answers that question of Zelda games. And I think I especially had this problem with Twilight Princess, which is, I know there's a puzzle to solve. I have these ideas on how to solve it. I don't know. The game's only going to give me one way to solve it. And I'm not sure how the game wants me to do that. Because mm. I have 10 different tools. It could be a lot of different things. I'm confused. <laughs> yeah. Um, and Zelda games uh, can be like that sometimes. And I think with this game, it really opens up the creativity, but also leaves for less aha moments because it feels like you can kind of like game the system. Anyways, that's an aside. Hmm. But the physics system is a huge, huge part of this game. And it's the interactivity of all of these elements. It's fire and the way you can set fire to anything. And, you know, like <laughs> enemies and, you know, like guardians can crash into Hinoxes and like kill each other. Like there's just, <laughs> everything is just like ping ponging off of each other and bouncing off of each other in this game. Uh, in really fun and interactive ways. It's it's peeling off the layers of video game logic and slowly trying to introduce vaguely cartoony real world logic, uh, which is very difficult to achieve. And so every now and then when I go, oh, I wish this was more fleshed out or why isn't this, you know, I also like step back and remind myself that like, it's easy to take something like that for granted because it's not quote unquote content because it's mm. like, well, they could have put more dungeons in because, you know, but we take that aspect of the game world for granted, but it's one of the hugest aspects of the game that they had to spend so much time working on and so much time sort of settling. And so I think like, I wouldn't say that I call this game a prototype, but I also say that you have to be fair to it in some ways in that what they did to cultivate sort of like this natural world where all of these things intersect, like that is the game. The yeah. game is walking around in nature. The game is the rain. The game is the lightning. Like that's truly what it is. And I think to a certain degree, the other Zelda stuff is just sort of, I wouldn't say it's set dressing, but to some degree it sort of is. We are used to in Zelda games like the big town side quest or, you know, each dungeon or a certain story se sequence. And that's how we sort of think of the game and the content of the game. And I would say that this game is very much not really about the destination. It's about the journey. And so I think in some ways it's like, if you can spend 150 hours just on various pathways and in forests and you spend I don't know, maybe like eight hours <laughs> beating Divine Beast. That seems like a, I don't know. I mean, 
what percentage of your game time is really spent doing side quests, like talking to people or solving dungeons? And so in that way, I think like, I kind of want more of that stuff. And I think that's where we can talk about a sequel, but I also think it's important to recognize that the in-between moments are really what the content of the game is. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> yeah. But we should, uh, we should talk about some of the weaknesses, uh, some yeah. of the little things that can be exploited or uh, just don't add up as well. And I know I've talked a lot, but I'll keep this short and I'll, I'll throw it to you. <laughs> but I would say a very, you know, you, you brought it up already, which is like hardy durian abuse. Um, <laughs> hardy and endurance foods are like super overpowered. Yeah. Uh, and the game late in its late stages has a really hard time with balancing difficulty and making fights actually seem threatening because of like packing fairies on you. Uh, and being able to walk in with like X amount of meals and like uncovering all of this stuff, that yeah. sort of danger that is just so exciting and so fascinating at the beginning of the game really starts to slip away the more you play it. And it starts to become more finite and maybe a little repetitive as you understand what the limitations of the game are or what the limitations of what you're going to find are, which is just like Korak seeds or like more equipment. Um, and, and so your limitations, you know, your options start to feel a little bit more limited, but sticking just to the food for a second. Um, yeah, I think that's a, that's kind of a glaring weakness. And I have my big pitch that basically only be able to eat like meals or like have less of an option maybe on like, I don't know. I just like, I have 200 apples. So like I can just eat <laughs> apples forever and yeah. like. I think maybe a system that's more rigid on like having you prepare things at campfires and then take that set of things with you in like a quick menu uh, like Skyward Sword has would make the yeah. game so much more balanced and like so much more dangerous. Anyways, yeah, that's my that's my food spiel. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we had some we had a little bit of discussion here and there on on uh, that with regards to like difficulty and preparation and uh and it's it is it is it's hard it's hard to simultaneously fulfill the vision of the game and also not impede the player in ways that can be overtly detrimental or outright discouraging and mm -hmm. like in places like there there are there are definitely places in the game of which kind of outright do this but they're more those limitations are more obvious and there's still ways to overcome them, come them in a way. And, uh, and mostly I'm speaking about like, uh, you know, death mountain, uh, Gerudo desert or, uh, or like the Hebrew mountains, especially all of which are more extreme environments. And I think a big weakness is like, that doesn't necessarily transfer as much into just the, the moment to moment situation of like, say encountering enemies. Like if you, you know, it's one thing to come across like an enemy camp, it's another to just find enemies scattered here and there. And over the process of having to deal with them, your your resources are being whittled down. And with the with the whole endurance system, which we'll get into that as well. I actually have a lot of good things to say about the endurance system um, on, on a whole. But um, when it comes to simply just survival, um, the game is a little too lenient, I think, with the degree of which you can simply immediately adjust for the environment. Again, yeah, it's hard because... It's me abusing all of my elemental weapons I keep on me to like switch with a pause from like frost blade <laughs> oh. to like fire blade and to like just yeah. abuse enemies like that over and over, which is like admittedly fun 
but definitely feels very broken. <laughs> yeah, like mid to late game, you you won't have any issues securing those kinds of weapons, and it's simply just too easy to to loop enemies to death. Yes, and uh, and just take a like just ice particular ice in particular with a damage bonus on frozen enemies is already <laughs> extremely like extremely powerful and also allows you to conserve a ton of um you know a ton of endurance on your weapons that the biggest the biggest thing is as soon as you get past early game doing any kind of like combo with your weapons is far from optimal it's in fact like really not good to waste four swings of your sword on an enemy when you can switch between two weapons and knock them out in two to three spread between two different weapons um, or simply like use ice arrows or yeah, just anything in that regard. And um, I think it's a shame. I think, I think the part of the endurance system that makes it so fun is simply the cycling inventory of where you're constantly just like, you're like, okay, I can talk this weapon's about to break. I'm gonna go ahead and give it a good toss or this weapon is weak. So I'll toss it just to knock the enemy down. I'm going to steal his weapon. Then I'm going to beat him to death with it. Like the idea <laughs> of that is, is fantastic. And it's, and it's really fun in early game. It really gets you thinking of that. And I think it's not really surprising to me then that there's both a part of the game that strictly forces that situation again, and that the trial of the sword also does the the same thing with this, where you're you're simply moving through your inventory. Yeah, um, I was gonna say I just played through Eventide again, or you know, on this playthrough, and I was like, oh, this was like so much fun. Yeah, I think it's yeah, I think that's when the game is at its best with these systems, and that's not to say that the endurance system gets bad later. It's simply that you, as a player, dealing with the circumstances, especially as the enemies. I find that the 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 black colored enemies tend to like have like just the right amount of HP, if not a little short on it. Once you get to like you know really really strong equipment, and I find the silver enemies just to be a bit too like so they almost always warrant abuse from my side. Oh yeah. Where I'm I'm always I'm always doing really cheesy sneak strike tactics, yes. or I'm yeah <laughs> I'm always doing uh just doing that <laughs> a lot. I actually um made a fun discovery. <laughs> with uh Lizalfos. like Lizalfos that are um specifically kind of crouching because some of them they're, if they're they're if they're camouflaged even if you sneak up on them they'll still get the jump on you yes but if you get if you're coming up behind them you snipe them in the if you snipe them in the head and then run up to like run up to them and then jump from behind like behind basically where you struck them then you can do sneak strikes like normal it's <laughs> it's I didn't really know that really ridiculous i find that pretty satisfying so i'm not i don't find that one as bad silver enemies having to loop them is a little ridiculous but the i did it a lot on Le electric lizalfos out in a grudo desert and i had a lot of fun doing that it was just funny because i was like i originally didn't know i was like how do i get a beat on these guys because even if they don't see me they just they know to jump on me and it's like i know i i, uh, I was like i wonder if this works and it was just it was so funny so moments like that are great but when it gets to like the spongier enemies, the silver variants, it's uh, it, it really is a bit too much. I'm more okay with mini bosses being a bit uh, tankier. You almost go into those fights ready to expend weapons on it because yeah. it's a worthwhile endeavor to do so. It yeah. usually is. So yeah, exactly. Uh, when I did um, oh the the uh, the north the Akala uh, research lab, when I did yeah. that, and I I sneak struck everything. <laughs> Yeah. Because I was like, I don't want to waste weapons like killing these guys. And I don't think I like broke a single one. But that's like, you know, then that's kind of where the game can be fun, where you decide to approach encounters in a certain way. Not because you're scared of actually like dying, but because you don't want to get in huge fist fights with some of these guys and have to expend too much of your gear. Yeah. My gear list is always just like two 
two of each element, a bunch of royal swords at this point. Yep. Like, uh, specific weapons that I don't want to pay a diamond to recraft, and I should just keep them out of my inventory because I don't actually want to use them. Uh, yeah, I'm like so lame with my inventory. <laughs> I don't want to actually break anything, but also I love yeah. breaking stuff. Oh, I, yeah. I'd have a lot of weapons reserved for very specific circumstances yes. that would just be hanging around. I found a... Uh, <laughs> I had found a royal uh, royal guards. Uh, I think it was the claymore or no great sword. It's the great sword. Uh, the royal guards great sword. That's the more like the the dark one with the low durability but high power. Yes. Found one with a, a attack enchantment that brought it up to hundred and twelve power. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, wow, that's uh, I've not that seen anything this strong. And I've basically it's my it's my Lionel killing tool because yeah. Lionel uh, durability isn't spent on uh, mounted attacks on them, so <laughs> I just use that for cutting through four thousand HP in like a couple of uh, cycles, which is hilarious. Oh my gosh. So it's I think it's I think it's neat in some way that you end up kind of you cut you start compartmentalizing weapons to specific purposes. I don't think there's anything particularly wrong, but then it that's kind of where the endurance system falls off, where it's like you're gonna have the things that you are gonna burn through. And but they're going to be like your standard, like your royal broadswords. Yeah. Uh, your royal broadswords, your royal uh, great swords, those are what going to get are going to get spent. While like your element, your elemental weapons are just going to kind of hang out until you're ready to use them for the right circumstance. Yeah. Um, or like my electric weapons, which I don't use, which I should. They're actually electric is actually a pretty good effect, but um, I really think I burn through more bows than I do weapons at times. Yeah, I think so too. So. Same. Yeah, so as far as the endurance system goes, I think I think it simply just falls short. I don't think people complain about it and they don't like the idea they they like the idea of the permanence and I get that. I completely understand that and that makes sense to me. I think within the context of the game, I find the endurance system to be like more than suitable and they give you permanence in form of the armor upgrades. Um Yeah. I think for me it's just kind of one of those things where like if you didn't have that the game would not be as I just don't think it would be as fun like I really don't think the game would work for me if I had a permanent weapon that would like never ever break because like yeah the whole point of that is it sort of changes like what encounters you can like go into and like what you can sort of expend and like what you can take on or like what the severity of taking something on is and like I don't know I just feel like that the difficulty of the game would just sort of melt away with me. I don't know. Yeah. But I do think that the quick change element of it is a little, it's a little abusable. (laughs) Once you have like a really good command of the controls, like you can really bork this game. Oh yeah. But here's one thing I will say about that, about borking the game (laughs) is, um, I was hanging out with one of my good friends and uh, she was playing uh, Breath of the Wild for the first time and I was watching her take on Divine Beast Ruta and she had four hearts at this point. Oh man. <laughs> and had no idea what she was walking into, never played the game before, isn't someone who like really hardcore plays video games, hasn't played a hundred Zelda games like I have. <laughs> and, um, and so I was like watching her play and like just get devastated by certain things. I was like, oh, well like, what what like meals do you have and she hadn't like cooked anything and i'm like well if you do this then you could like do this or like that and so like i i watched her beat 
that like water blight Ganon and use every single arrow that she had, like all shock arrows, all five, like <laughs> expended every single resource, every single weapon that existed. It was like a desperate fight. It took a bunch of tries. It was awesome. <laughs> and she was in such like a difficult scenario that I was like, oh, I could definitely like, you pass me the sticks, we'll be all right. Then when I actually <laughs> played Water Blight Ganon with like my incredibly like souped up Link with like 13 hearts and all kinds of gear, I was like totally being lazy and just like being a battering ram and taking tons and tons of hits, which I tend to do late game because I just go, ah, hit me, who cares? And I played yeah. very stupid and just barge my way through. And I realized yeah. that like the game is abusable if you're really good at it. Yeah, but for a lot of people, it's it it's very unwielding for a while, and it's very challenging, and it's really complex. And so, I, as much as I kind of wish that that stuff would taper off, then I see someone else play it, and I go, "Well, if I wanted what I wanted, this game would be incredibly hard, and people would hate." Yeah, it. like a whole <laughs> swath of people who have come to enjoy it would yeah. not be able to get off the ground floor. So I don't know. That's just yeah, exactly. It's, it's really like it, people yeah. who aren't complete monsters. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's it's hard to it's hard to be too too rough on the combat system, especially and the nature of how it all interacts. When yeah, when we're kind of the exception to it, we're not the exception. I'm sure like there is clearly some there's a lot of thought put into mind for the kind of player who masters these kinds of systems. That's why there's so much thought put into everything. Um, but the but the essence of it is really just getting the player to think about situations in a kind of way that isn't just go up to the enemy and hit them. And you get I mean, yeah. you get punished a lot for doing that in the first place. So the game really does try to push you in a way towards that thought process. Um, it's just that once you get to a certain point, you kind of get to ignore thinking smart. Yeah, exactly. My my even favorite, with all the silver enemies and stuff. Because yeah. Because of the elemental weapon. Yeah. My, Anyways, I'm sorry. My, oh, you're good. <laughs> my, yeah, my favorite times with, with like combat situations in the game has primarily to do with the combination of environment and learning how to control the battlefield at the same time. Uh, I, think, I think it's like knowing it's like, okay, I'm dropping in from high. Uh, the enemies are sitting on a platform. I could probably... <laughs> I, love, I love that you can do this. Seriously, such a great... Uh, choice that they allow this is being able to instantly drop bombs while gliding is yes. is brilliant it's so good i forget about it it's such a, it's such a good feature and just the nature of bombs except for moblins who are you know deliberately meant to <laughs> impede you on that um you can you can just blow things away clear the field and then at the same time as you're dropping in you're like okay i need to partition my stamina in such a way that i can safely drop in i can maybe snipe an enemy or two on my way down and then if the platform's clear, I can go and sneak strike. That, like, when you can engage in that thought process and really think that stuff out, that is when I think the system is best. Because the going the going up and just get hitting an enemy, that was always an interesting change to me, that they actually outright, well, the weapon variants on its own between the three weapon types, but also uh, just the combo system is, is really, it's really simplified now. There's really nothing much to it. The fourth hit is basically just designed to be a, uh, like, a knockdown hit, which is... I mean, that's been a thing since Wind Waker, but it's a lot more important here because it's effectively a means of getting an enemy out and off of you, but also sitting in combat and trying to do two strikes, two or two to four strikes to knock an enemy down while there's like three other guys nearby is also not ideal. And I think that's also like a good thing. So I think they, 
I think, again, when it comes to the core essence of what they're going for as far as ebb and flow, it's good. But the balance of the game simply doesn't doesn't always lean in favor of that. So I think mm-hmm. that's that's a that's a struggle with it. So it's it's a um I don't know if I can call it a small criticism, but it's it's something that's just a struggle with the system being as complex as it is. It's just very hard to account for for all those factors at the same time. So it's something I'm a little more forgiving of, and uh, something that well I'll probably just stick to normal mode playthroughs for that reason. Gold enemies are kind of ridiculous. <laughs> so. Yeah. When you're hitting four figures in HP on normal enemies, I'm like, I'm, I'm just gonna peace. I'm out. So it, it just gets absurd. Going into more, I'm trying to think of other criticisms. I well, like, I would say one of the biggest things, and you kind of mentioned the whole journey and not the destination thing, and I think that really is true. Really, like, if if most of your enjoyment, like of your personal enjoyment, in the way you enjoy a game is getting to getting to something and experiencing major events. Um, I think the biggest struggle is this game's ability to surprise you. Um, for one, it, de- it decreases over time. Yes, that was literally the next thing I wanted to talk about. <laughs> yeah, the biggest thing, just um, there, are, there are a lot of factors that add up to this. The the shrines and the Divine Beasts, I think, collectively don't help this very much. Um, I think there were a lot of missed opportunities to use ruin, ruined Hyrule in a way that could have been really like evocative or like help you. Maybe you came upon certain things that like, even if they weren't like, Oh, there's no Korok seed or whatever. You're like, that's the idea of coming upon something and just being like, wow, what was like this all about? I think it's, that's a bit, there's a bit of a missed opportunity for, for, for things like that. Cause I think more than anything, like the gameplay stuff, like the gameplay motivations are already very, very strong. Even if like, even if like the the extrinsic rewards themselves are like yeah you know what to expect out of it like there's always some drive to just look around and hunt for stuff because it's just you know it's fun to pick it's fun to collect materials it's fun to get korok seeds it's fun to get um fun to find shrines um but i think i was always like looking around and i've had a couple times this playthrough where i was just like oh i don't even remember walking through this area i just remember that once i had most of the shrines i just warped to wherever i wanted to go to just go do things but like spending time actually exploring it's it's just kind of cool to come up on like, oh, I just don't think I ever even bothered to explore this space. That's neat. And it might not be anything like special in its own right, but there's just, it's just kind of different things to look at. Yeah. Yeah. But the game, yeah, the game's abilities to surprise you beyond that or to like make you think about certain things isn't really always the strongest. And there's a lot that's tied into the story that we'll get into later. But yeah, I want to kind of give you the space as well to, to voice on that. Yeah. It just, it starts to become a predictable sort of loop and it can feel like, why am I continuing to like do this? Like the the answer to like that looks cool is either gonna be like there's a shrine there or like there's Korok there or like maybe there's a chest there. And I think that part of that problem is just like because shrines dole out, you know, like essence and you don't have heart pieces, just like the potential surprise of rewards, it starts to fall off in this game, especially as you become acquainted with it and understand what like what range of possibilities it will give you and so i think in that way you could complete quests in like other zelda games and they felt really specific and precious and you know like you care about them and you remember them because of the reward you got but also because that reward also ties into making those moments feel impactful versus just like having implied meaning of like oh i helped that person and actually there was like quietly a very interesting story behind that i didn't realize but it it just hits different when you get 
like more worthwhile rewards, I guess I would say. Yeah. And so I wish there was more of that in this game. And I don't think you even have to take like bring heart pieces back because I, I like the way that shrines work and I like how you can make decisions with that. And it, it just, there's such a reward to find. But I also think that like more equipment that was side quest locked, more mini games, like the mini mm. games just really don't hit, not cause like they're not even fun, but because like before you would like slave over mini games cause you know that like, oh, it's part of this or I'll get this reward or I'll get an upgraded quiver or I'll get, you know, this or that. And I understand that they don't, because the world is so big and you might not get to like X, Y, or Z place for like a very long time, they don't want to like bog you down. But I think like if they had more stuff that was like spread out amongst the towns that was like coded so it took into account which one you would hit, like the great fairies do. So it doesn't matter which one you go to or which one's first, like they're all going to be stepping up in a certain way. Like you could have, you know, like archery places, you could have different mini game places that tear up in the same way and like dole out, you know, like a cool bow or like stuff for your house. Like, I just think there are other options for like more rewards that could be more fun and more exciting. And I think like sequelizing, but if there was something I would want in a sequel that had a lot of similar components to this game, it would be mixing up the rewards. Cause like I, I will turn over every rock for every Korok seed. <laughs> I enjoy doing that. But I also think that like, especially with regards to like NPCs, more, I want more meaningful rewards. Like, it's cool that you do the Terrytown side quest and you get those people to set up their stores, but it would feel a lot more meaningful if, like, you know, um, Ronson, <laughs> Ronson, her name? If she set up a shop with, like, exclusive clothing that you couldn't have gotten at Gerudo Town. Yeah. Like, I just wish there was more of that. And that's why I think the game starts to feel predictable, because there are really cool things to go and find, but, you know it's another talus, it's another whatever. And I enjoy fighting them, but I want more mystery. The game starts to run out of mystery. But anyway, let's let's go ahead and move on to the story. I know that you have a lot to say about it. Yeah, there's um, the first playthrough through this, uh, through this game, I, I think that's when the story is its strongest. I think it's because the idea of playing as an amnesiac is something that actually plays pretty well into this game. I think the very nature of the game, you know, effectively it's coinciding. It's basically running a parallel between Link's knowledge of himself and also your abilities as a, as a player growing. And I think like when that's in unison like that, which will only really be true for the first time you play through the game, or I mean, maybe if you played the game in like 10 years and you haven't played in a long time, I think there's the main time when like a lot of the sequences, like with the memories, I think that's when they'll, they'll hit the most and the best in particular. And I remember finding like getting all the memories and seeing the final memory. I remember that being a pretty cathartic moment overall, not like amazing, but I just found it to be good. Like it coincided with everything. I felt like I, I felt really empowered as a player that it's like, yeah, I've, you know, I mastered so many things. I have the master of my hand. I have, you know, and I've completely regained Link's memory. So it's like, you know, you feel <laughs> in essence, like links to the character, the name fits it accordingly. And um, I think that works then for that for for that, and then I think it just kind of um, it doesn't hold up well on later playthroughs as much. And I think just as far as an impact goes, it's not like 
it's not particularly strong. And there are a lot of factors that go into this. Like the nature of the game being open-ended means you're going to find the memories out of order. It's just, it's, it is near guaranteed to be happened. We can go into factorials again about this, but it's going to be some insane number of combinations, but you are, you're, you're bound to find them out of order. And so they had to be oriented in a way that you could only get kind of certain blips of things. And then when it's in full context, you're like, oh, okay, cool. Um, but it's not going to be able to be structured in a way that they can pace the narrative. They can build up. They, yeah, that's the, that's the biggest struggle is they can't necessarily build up per se. All they can really tell you is that, yeah, again, it needs to be defeated. And it's like, oh, okay. Um, I mean, yeah, that's, that's the plan. Uh, and that's, that's about the, you know, degree of what you can do that. There's nothing, it's not to say there, there isn't room for that. I think if there was just simply more depth Either not so much to the threat of Ganon, like the, the threat, the threat of Ganon is tangible. It is um, evident across Hyrule. Like you see that everywhere. And that's the very nature, like the very design of Hyrule is meant to be like ruined in it and uh, the way it's presented. And I think they do a really good, like as far, as far as the world goes as a character in the story, if we want to put it that way, it's, it's phenomenal. It's sublime. Uh, I really, apart from like the things I mentioned earlier, like it's, it is really, really good. Uh, when it comes to the story and the moments with like the character moments, they're, are a couple things with Zelda primarily, and that's kind of really it. And it, it's kind of more than anything. Like I was looking forward to getting to know more about the champions, and it was kind of it. Just kind of came away a little bit disappointed that it really didn't go anywhere. Each of them had much kind of like a lot of the, a couple of the things in this game that can't really surprise you. Um, you you find that kind of turning out to be the same way with a lot of the. Um, with a lot of the, the with the, well, all the champions, really, there's not really any one of them in particular. I would say that really stands out, except for uh, Rivali. <laughs> That's because my friend of mine and I, we call him Falco, because we're just like, <laughs> yeah, I don't know. He just has the same attitude, and so um, and he only really sticks out because he's just kind of a jerk, and then he becomes a little bit less of a jerk. But um, it's just the 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 writing gets really it just it's really redundant it's really really redundant because they had i'm not convinced it had to be this way either i think in some way they're trying to account for the player coming on different things and out of different orders but i think the problem is i think they should they could have redone the scenes like or had different versions of the scenes that play depend on like what you've already done yeah which i wish like they would have done yeah, and I th- I like that, and um, I just think with it, especially with going back in the memories themselves, or even just like I, I was <laughs> just before we started this, I was talking to you, but the whole thing where they all in the same like every time you're about to fight each of the the blights, they're like, oh, this was the thing that defeated me from 100 years ago, <laughs> and they say it in that exact that one they all say it in that same way. Like the the exact like there's no room for anyone to be like oh like that was like you know a hundred years ago or something like that or like that was some time ago like everyone like everyone who has any connection to calamity again and striking back in you know back then it's always in reference in that kind of way and there's no there's no f- almost like freedom for characters to kind of express themselves. It's, it sounds strange, but it really does feel like there's some kind of really strict narrative, res- like just, yeah, narrative restraint on these characters. And they don't get to like breathe and get to have like kind of a personality in that sense. And also on the other side of things too, it is 
weird to have voice acting and then Link be mute. And which I'm like, okay, fine. They can kind of explain it in some capacity or another. Uh, or like not explain it, but rather it's just like, okay, you know, it's something that the player can accept. And then the, the game is just like, oh, he's just really stoic. But also he loves food. And it's just like, ah, that's... <laughs> I mean, I would have been okay with parts of that if they were just willing to do more with that. And I think, like, he, he doesn't have to talk. Like, I know it'd still be kind of weird. It'd be kind of jarring. But I think just having a greater degree of expression all around, I think, would have been great to help him at least have some kind of characterization back and forth. But he really doesn't respond to much of anything that any anyone around him is saying and i'm like if he's gonna be silent at least have him like i don't know acknowledge things and he just he just doesn't and yeah i'm know. like no wonder like zelda's so annoyed with this guy he just like <laughs> follows her around and like says nothing and has says a blank expression nothing. on his face <laughs> i mean i love the design of this link but he just comes oh, yeah. off as like such this sort of like Ah, oh, well, you know, orders are orders, sister, so yep. here I am. I'm just very committed to Like, one of the remarks that, that really stuck out a lot, he's like, oh, like, we're, one of the memories where she's like, oh, you're, you're, a, you're a knight, uh, just like your dad. I'm like, uh, okay, that's, <laughs> yeah. I'm in, okay, we're, we're trying to give, like, you can't, you can't tease the idea stuff and then just not have anything. And so, like. Like I just I think of I think of um not to jump the gun too much but like I think of um Skyward Sword Link and the way that they like yeah he's still a silent protagonist but because they gave you so many uh, dialogue options even if they're even if they're frivolous at times you still got to at least play some part in characterizing Link <laughs> as I discussed how I made him a troll at a lot of the time but like yeah it's still fun but like you know he still has a core desire to to protect Zelda. And that's still, you know, that's, that's characterization. And that was still fairly evident uh, in, in who he was. And so there was at least some compelling like connection there. And so I, I think by comparison, the biggest problem here, especially with the ending of the game, the ending of the game is, is um, I, I don't want to call thoughtless, but it just, it, again, it, feel, it really does feel restrained. Like the characters aren't allowed to grow into anything. And I, I just don't believe that the design of this game is what restricted this from becoming that way. I like, why can't we have like a heartfelt reunion between Zelda and Link at the end of the game? Where it's like, if you, especially if you get the true ending, like the true, a true ending of the game means almost nothing. Yeah. Um, all Zelda asks you a question and, <laughs> and then that's it. And then you get like a little sequence after that. And even that doesn't have like that much more to say that for that matter except hey we're gonna restore high world i'm like that's cool like i'm i'm glad that's that's nice to know that you know they're gonna work on things together doing that but that's like but that's it and it's just like are, is there any does link have any desires does he do anything it just um you know you, the only real sense of what you get out of link is kind of how you decide to like connect to him and how you play the game which i think like you know it's fitting and that's why he's a silent protagonist i don't have an issue with that you know okay i i have been <laughs> So I, I've been sitting here for a second, like really mulling in my brain, like going a little bit crazy because I was thinking about how the story sections in this game remind me of another. And I was like, I swear we talked about it on the podcast. <laughs> I swear it was a Zelda game. I've talked about this. What is it? I thought maybe it's Skyward Sword. And so I finally put it together. And so the story of this game kind of reminds me like the execution of it in some ways and sort of the little bit of disconnect from the actual gameplay 
reminds me of Majora's Mask. Hmm. And one of the things I talked about with that game yeah. was that you had all this stuff going on in Clock Town, but it felt really, really separate from like any of the story stuff you did or like that the people in Clock Town were very separate and didn't have interactivity with any of the people that lived in the story towns. Because like in order to like make it all work and because like what happened in the story towns was like whether like different events would have to occur, that was very complicated. And so they're kind of like separated in that way. And those like story three day cycles feel very disconnected from like the rest of the game. They yeah. aren't really working together. And so there's this sort of weird feeling of that game as you play it that you, what's happening exists very separately. It's hard to describe. I described it in that episode. <laughs> I'm sure to a better degree. But what I was really racking my head over and thinking about was like with this game is that you just don't get to, the most active parts of the story are all flashbacks and even though you go and beat the Divine Beasts, there's something that feels very passive about your participation in the story, which your participation in the story Majora's Mask is much more active, but it's sort of this feeling, I guess, that because it's very complicated, because in this case, things can be completed in different orders or not at all, that the total way you expect them to interconnect sort of doesn't, I guess, and makes them feel maybe kind of like one-off and not fully, not brought to like their fullest potential in that like the people in the rest of Hyrule feel very separate from like what's going on with beasts in other corners of Hyrule and like the people you meet in the field outside of like Goron Village or Zora's Domain and stuff feel very separated from some of that stuff. Yeah. And they don't really have impacts on the rest of the world. And I guess what I would say is that the way that they feel similar to me is that they, you look at these four points and they're like story sequences. And there is story sequence you initiate and it's not necessarily organic. It's not like you just like stumble upon a dungeon. You must initiate the sequence. Yeah. You can't fly on to like Ruta. It will shock the crap out of you and send you <laughs> flying you have to initiate the proper sequence, which is like necessary to have anything resembling kind of a story, but then also takes away what's like the core essence of the game, which is like exploring and discovery, uh, which is like a core essence of the original game, going into dungeons and having a really smooth transition from dungeon to overworld. Um, and being able to move in and out of them very freely. And so what I'd say is, what I'm not expecting from Breath of the Wild is for it to be like Majora's Mask, for all these towns to be interconnected. But I guess the question to me is, what the game's execution of its story, its plot, its necessary goals, does the game then stray from the fabric of what the game is in its totality? And so with Majora's Mask, it's about interactivity, it's about side quests, it's about the three-day cycle. But the three-day cycle in the story parts isn't really a three-day cycle. It's just like a beat the boss before and after sort of cycle. And they feel much more static in comparison. And so executing the story and the dungeons feels like it's tearing and ripping and fraying a little bit at the fabric of what the game really is. And here it's that similar thing where it's not like you see these incredible monsters and then you climb, 
you know, a volcano on your own, fly onto it, conquer it, like go into this dungeon, you have to like go through the necessary steps. Yeah. And I think maybe that's like one of the things that's sort of like missing in this game and something I would like to see later on is that like the story is literally compartmentalized into these memories, into these cutscenes of little story content <laughs> delivered to you uh, and unearthed. But it's not like you're weaving through ruins and discovering journals um, or creating little history entries in your compendium. I think you're really limited in learning about the history of the world, um, learning about the stories of the people who live in it outside of just the main story characters. Everyone else is just kind of random. And I think that going off of the whole rest of the game and sort of its thesis statement that the story would be better explored through helping people solve their problems. I don't know, having like a hero ranking sort of thing <laughs> of becoming a better hero and like helping people like around town, like having some sort of reputation or you know, rebuilding ruins. I don't know. I just think like, and that's something that I would really like to see it like, you know, a let's rebuild Hyrule <laughs> type of game is focusing on the little stories that you create for yourself instead of just having like 90% of what the game is. And then 10% of like, kind of like what I said earlier of like, well, this is what you have to have. So here it is. Yeah. Like how impactful would it be if, you stumbled upon some massive creature without any sort of comment from the game and you like figured it out. Or instead of just finding a shrine, you dug into a hole and like found like a whole nother dungeon. There's just yeah. so much potential of like history and eeriness. You know, there's like two moments that I'll, I'll, I'll speak of to the story and other games that have more impact with very little. The shrine in Link's Awakening, when you go through that creepy shine, shrine and you hear that remix of the Ballad of the Windfish and you read that it's a dream, is so... It Yes, it's a story sequence, but also because it's confined within the normal controls of the game, there's no... You know, obviously it's an old Game Boy game. There's no cutscene of, ah, and then he sees... You know, the clicking on it... I guess I would just say within the gameplay mechanics of that game, the feeling of exploring that dungeon and then just walking up to a wall and like, you know, seeing what it has to say and like seeing these images flash on the screen just felt so impactful. Hmm. And just like that, that information was like delivered in such a strong way. It felt so private, like this sort of like dread, this sort of like quiet understanding. It's hard to explain. And another moment I think of is, which gets me misty every single time, and it's half an hour into the game, is Link on the ship waving goodbye to his grandma. Hmm. It's so, it works and it's just, it's so emotional. You feel him as a character. The music is great and it's a cutscene, and it works. Like you can put so much emotion into that scene. And, you know, it's something that I think about whenever I hear that music, it just like 
puts me in that place. And I think here with this game, you don't go into like these cool caves, like that goddess shrine with like all the guardians in it and learn something about the world that makes you go, oh my goodness. There's so much history with the Sheikah in this game. There's so much history with this ancient technology. Yeah. What if there's a whole story underneath all of this of how this this technology destroyed the world before? Or why did they build this stuff in the first place? Or what about the lost histories of what happened with the previous Calamity Ganon? Or the past histories of previous Princess Zeldas? There's so much that you could discover in this game that could add like a really more haunting undercurrent that would really dive in. Like think of, uh, you know, the scanner in the Metroid Prime games. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Like that's what I want is to like discover the world and like think and like slowly piece things together. You know, like the way that like a game like The Witness really gets under your skin, you know, or I mean, even like a game like Braid, which probably hasn't aged as well, but also, you know, made an impact on me when I was a kid, that there's a hauntingness of information and you're talking about a post-apocalyptic world. And I wish that the game went further in that direction. Anyways, that's a really long <laughs> spiel. I'm full of them on this episode of the podcast. This game makes me think a lot. But I just yeah. think that... I like the villages, but I also think that because the game can't force you to do anything, it doesn't want to lock you anything into anything, all of these sequences really lack urgency that makes you feel like an active participant in the story, yeah. other than just some guy that decides, all right, I'm finally going to go shoot arrows at this thing, let's go. <laughs> you know? like. Yeah. Is it really a pressing problem if Prince Sidon's just going to wait at the end of the dock until I finally decide to stop the beast? But I don't want the game to lock me in either. So it's like, yeah. it's a problem, but I couldn't tell you what the solution is. I'm not yeah. really sure. It's uh, it's kind of what I've been saying about the, um, just the, the, the nature, the, the difficulty of the game to surprise you. And that especially goes into just little world building moments. And you kind of just made me think about this more, but especially when you were talking about specific story sequences too, I, I keep thinking of Wind Waker and like the story is not like a huge part of the game. Like it's definitely story to like the game's linear in its own right. Like the, the core of the game is the, the great sea in its own right isn't. But like the, you know, the start to end of the story is is a straight linear shot. And it's surprising, you know, again, like we remarked on before, it's surprising how much depth there is that comes in at the end of the game and not in a way that wasn't like unwarranted either. And it's something that I really hope for in this game, but simply it doesn't build up the, the credibility to make it uh, hit. And the ending simply just doesn't hit like it's supposed to either. And I think a lot of what you mentioned really gets at that. And I keep thinking of, uh, all I can keep thinking of is the idea I had that I shared with you, which is um, it would have been really cool to see more, like so taking what they did with Hyrule Castle, which we'll get to that. And I find that to be like the pinnacle of like the of like the more intentional design in the game. I find that to be phenomenal. And I think seeing something like that in some capacity for what either you're not maybe in place of the divine beast, but in some way, something that would have been able to give us history. Because I think I find Hyrule Castle to be one of the more compelling areas in the game. When you find when you come upon Zelda's journal and you come across the the King's journal as well, both of those have like just very interesting tidbits of information 
that that make things come alive a bit more, and especially where each of the journals end in context with the fact that you're reading them in a ruined Hyrule castle, really it does more than pretty much most of any of the story elements. They're not like amazing yeah. things, but they're just they're things you come across. And I'm just like, man, what if they leaned into this really hard and really and really banked on this a lot more? I mean, one of the things that the DLC highlights, and I'm not even talking about the champions ballot. I'm actually talking about the the EX treasures. Um, you have Misko's journals, and he's basically found these relics of equipment that's honoring like older Zelda games from Hyrule. Like he stole them from Hyrule Castle, and I'm like, that's interesting. What are they doing? I didn't with- know that. <laughs> that's that's something I found out from that. That it's just like, oh, that's interesting. And like even apart from the DLC, he's mentioned. He, there's actually a there is actually a quest that happens. Oh, I forget what region. It's the same region as uh, Hateno, uh, or is it maybe it's like yeah. Maybe the, maybe the region is Hateno, but it's the one where you go up the waterfall and bust open the cave and find all that treasure. Yeah. Um, that's like, it's like Misko's like, tre- like cash or something like that. It's just things like that that it's just like, ah, man, I would have really just liked to have gotten more of this. Like just to know that there was a famous thief who was stealing like significant like relics from Hyrule Castle uh, to see Zelda and the King journaling before effectively their final days in that regard. Though Those are all great elements that I think would have really helped characterize the situation far more than uh what the memories did because i think the memory it feels like the memories are there because they have to prove that they're a high production value game so they have to have good cutscenes. <laughs> yeah that's kind of that's the best way yeah. i can put it because the production value of the cutscenes are they're phenomenal they're really really good they it's clear that after working on skyward sword they really mastered a great sense of just musical direction and and choreography and as putting these scenes together they're great i really like how these are are handled, but they're not they're not significant at the end of the day either, which is just kind of makes it feel a little fruitless. And so it's just thinking about those the the journal entries in particular, and you mentioning you mentioning Metroid Prime especially. I was just like, yeah, you know what? That would have been a great time for something that would have allowed us to come across things organically like that. And it's it is it's weird and really disconnected from the the core of the game that the story that the game doesn't not doesn't trust you per se but well almost in a way it's almost like the story the story of the game is almost at odds with the core of the game and as much as it almost seems like it doesn't trust the player to get the point so it has to reiterate it four times um and then zelda needs to add on top of that as well that it's <laughs> like all right link you regained all your memories you've defeated all the divine beasts uh, now you're truly ready to fight Ganon. It's like I listen. I could have fought Ganon whenever I wanted to. <laughs> so I'm. I mean, sure. I guess I'm ready to go fight him. But I'm actually going to go find the remaining uh, 25 shrines. So just give me a little bit here. And so yeah. it just. <laughs> I just don't feel anything um, for those moments because of that that disconnect. And again, it's not something that ultimately like takes away from my love of the gameplay. Because that's ultimately like like that is the biggest driving force. But it's kind of a shame to see the story falter in a way that doesn't allow the game to strike the player and uh, and be memorable in the way that you mentioned, like the way that Link's Awakening was, where it's like that was an organic moment. Like it was a it was a moment that was bound to happen. You have to go there to get the shrine key. But it's something that's like you didn't really expect. Like you knew something was going on, but you didn't expect to suddenly be revealed the most important information in the game here and it suddenly just completely just changed your perception of what you were doing or just the ending of wind waker where you're just like (laughs) 
<laughs> where Link is simultaneously completely just disconnected from the legacy of Hyrule, and yet the just like Ganon's own internal, like his own struggle, his own conflict, and yet his insanity at the same time is something that's so compelling. Uh, and that's just because the themes of the game, despite the care, like despite Link's own disconnect, the themes of the game are woven into it and they impact you in that way. And so that's something that's just like thematically, the game does have, has really strong themes, especially regarding Zelda's character. There, there's a lot to be said there for what the point they're making about freedom, the freedom to choose to like, you know, live the, you know, live the life you want, life you want to, you want to see. There's a lot to be said about that. And Zelda really is like, she's the character of which effectively lives that out in the consequence of not, I mean, in a really extreme way, but that that's there and it's present and it's, and it's decent, but it doesn't really, it doesn't really come back and connect to you as the player yeah. in the way that, that previous games had. I, um, and I think, I don't know. I mean, so far playing through this time, the most like emotionally impactful moment for me that like got me like feeling it a little bit was, um, after beating, oh, I can't remember what the, Lizard Divine Beast is. I want to say like Volvagia, but... Oh, uh, Rudania. Rudania. Yep. Yeah, okay. yeah. They all have like vaguely reminiscent names of other things. Um, <laughs> after beating him, Daruk looking down at like, oh, Yunobo? What is his name? I think Yunobo? I think it is Yunobo. Yeah. Uh, the young Goron. Uh, it yeah. really hit me. <laughs> like, it I really, really liked that. Got me. And it just kind of felt like I think like the most impactful thing about the divine beast and like why I kind of will like defend them versus like normal dungeons is like especially like the first time I ever played one like back in my first playthrough. Oh my gosh, they just haunted the crap out of me <laughs> because you're like you're playing through it and you realize that like, you're playing through like somebody's like grave. Yeah, and so there's like this haunting like under the undercurrent under all of it is like somebody died here. Yeah. And like, they were my friend and they were killed and they had to watch the world be destroyed. And they've been sitting here for a hundred years alone. And it's just so. (laughs) Yeah. It's just so. The atmosphere is palpable. Yeah. I wish that there were more ghosts like everywhere in the game. Just more ghosts. I love the ghosts. The ghosts are so scary, like creepy, not like scary, but just like when you think about it, when you sit with it, you're just like, oh. Like, Somebody died here. Like the old man, <laughs> and then he's gone. Yeah, and from well, the king of Hyrule. But just, anyways, that's not. Yeah, really, that's just that was probably of... the one thing that struck me about <laughs> one of the memories of it was one of the memories when Ganon finally erupts from Hyrule Castle, and you're like, the, I don't know in what way or how, but the king, the king is dead. Yeah, he is dead. <laughs> yeah, and, but like uh, that, like those like last couple of scenes with like uh, Link outside of like the Hateno Gate. I'm just like all I can just think is like everyone's dead at this point, and it's woof, it's heavy. Yeah, <laughs> like this is like post moon crashing on Clock Town. Like these are the survivors. Like, yeah. Woo. Um, Man. But in a, in a similar vein to that, because one of the things that like really hits me emotionally, and I think drives home that sort of one of the things that I think the story excels at when it does hit those moments of like haunting melancholy uh the music helps a lot and one of the places that i really want to point out with like the divine beast is mifa that music in like ruta is it's like chiming in my head like right now it yeah 
that first song, and especially, I don't think it was the first, I really feel like Herbosos was the first Divine Beast I did. Or maybe it was the first one I reached, but Ruta was actually the first one I beat. I don't remember, but the first time I played the game, it made such an impact on me. It felt so creepy and like sweet and sort of like twisted. And I just, I love the music in this game. I think it's really brilliant. It's, it's not necessarily a soundtrack that I go and like listen to, but the way it interacts with like the game and like the rhythms of the game is just like kind of oh, blows me away. It's sublime. It's so I know good. it's a word I've used a bunch, but it really, I'll, I'll talk about the transitions first. Cause I think that's something it's. You, I'm sure you've come across this a couple moments. One, of, it sounds like a weird thing to dial, like to dial into and talk about specifically. But the the handling of musical transitions in this game is on a level. I don't, I don't think there's anything even comparable to the degree, like to how well it is done in this game. And I think, like one of the best examples, like I think the best way I can describe it uh, is hanging around in Gerudo Town. It's, you know, it's sunset. You have the daytime version of the theme playing. And something I didn't really pick up on, and I don't know if it's just I hadn't, I hadn't listened hard enough, but I was wondering, I'm like, do they do like a, I'm like, I'm like, I'm sure they do some type of fader or something in order to move it or something like that. And it's like, no, it's actually, and I don't, I don't know how they did it. It's so seamless, but basically there is a certain point where the music using the same instruments it's using modulates down to the up or down to the key of whatever the day or the nighttime piece is it's still the same instruments it hasn't shifted then they start to slowly roll it out roll out and then the, the new piece then moves in seamlessly and i'm like how in the world did they do this it just struck me it, it's one for one it's really made me it, like it's made the towns very very memorable to me um for, i mean especially grudo town and rito village in particular but that I, I just wanted to mention that in particular because that's something that is i can't imagine how much work that took to get that um but there there is so much more than just basic faders going on with it that got that to happen the the tempo change of the modulate modulation yet the instruments stay the same and then shift out somehow i i have to like go back into the game just to remember how that even came about and so i just want to mention that before i dive in like composers and the soundtrack on a whole but in the market uh, tradition of me bringing up composers, because it's just really fun, <laughs> um, and I'm always really interested in this, we have um, we have three credited composers. I want to mention that because I actually see a lot of uh, uncredited, well, not uncredited, but rather there's a lot of people that did some small arrangements here and there that assisted with the main composers. But we have um, the only returning composer of the three uh, credited here. We have uh, Hajime Owakai, who was originally on, he was a part of, of Wind Waker. He's back, and he did. Uh, I don't. I'm not gonna get into the details of what each of these guys did. Only if there's anything that sticks out. Um, he did, but he did most of. The, he did a lot of the jingles, a lot of fun jingle, jingles, I guess, and a couple of a uh, couple of battle themes. And that makes sense. It's from the man that uh, produced Mulgara, uh theme, which is a great theme. Um, we have Yasuaki Iwata. Uh, was a part. I think started back in on Super Mario 3D World, and then stayed on a couple of main titles up until jumping onto this. He did a variety of themes i think he did all of the uh town themes in the game yeah and we have and yeah so we have uh minaka Kata, kataoka as well on board and so after after twilight especially after 
Twilight Princess and Skyward Sword. And I think I think even like Wind Waker has its own some of some of its own weaknesses in its soundtrack, but I think it has like better things to make up for it. I think after the kind of the weakness of like in uh, soundtracks that uh, Twilight Princess and Skyward Sword had, it's astounding how good this soundtrack is. Um, the common criticism, because I'm just gonna I'm gonna bring up right away because I figured I'd mention it, has to do with the lack of a field music or just being kind of like light little piano kind of diddling. It seems like almost. Uh, just kind of just messing around, just fiddling, fiddling around on like a piano. Um, I, I mean, I don't, I don't know what to make of the piano stuff, but I don't have an issue with, um, with the lack of music in the field for the most part. I, and that's by and large because it's not, it's not designed for that. It's not built for you to hear a looping tune or even something with like a lot of dynamic, like dynamics to it. I don't think that that's not part of the intent. And for one, I'm also going to go ahead and boast of the. The sound design of which is unbelievable in this game. Amazing. It is is so good. And I would want nothing else other than to really clearly... There there are so many factors in play. There are so many factors in play that come with having the sound design being such an active part of the game. Whether that's just the nature of how Link's footsteps sound, which just... I don't even know how to describe them. It's just... It sounds strange. But just there's so many materials like the sound of it is... Like just sticks in my mind. Of how it is like oh this is what it sounds like when he's running around on rocks this is what it sounds like when he's running around on like shrine grounds or something like that there's just a there's a key sound to it or like when you're shield surfing that's like the biggest thing that tells all of it as like to how easy it's going to be to shield surf is is like the sound it's making it's crazy and so i wanted to just kind of you know make a remark against that kind of criticism that i don't really find there to be any issue i i might take small issue with again with the kind of abstractness of the the kind of scattered parts going on with it but i conceptually i i kind of get what they're going for it's just not something that like ends up striking me emotionally in any kind of way and for something that makes up you know 70 percent of your game time that would seem like an issue and it's just i don't because again the sound design plays such a huge part when it comes to the broader soundtrack on a whole for the either the moments or the places of which they take place of just amazing and one of if not shoot could i go on to call this the finest soundtrack in the series because honestly the yeah I'm potentially with, i'm with you on the divine beast themes these these are the hands down the best dungeon themes in the series they have such an otherworldly sense to them and at the same time it's man <laughs> let alone like hyrule castle which if you're looking for like your oh. big bombastic video game music i mean that, there it is yeah <laughs> so good wow. that is amazing too yeah uh the divine beasts and so, themselves i kind of want to narrow on it's something that if you've probably like watched if you've listened to the music through youtube videos and read comments you may be like aware of the fact that um and this is something again it's not something i pick up until someone so until people started mentioning it is the fact that there's morse code being played out played out for i believe it's uh an sos signal is what they're sending out effectively but it's sitting very quietly in the background oh my gosh of really the the that's entire so time. creepy give, give it to a listen it is it, when you think about that that's terrifying it's so sad it's, oh it's, it's incredibly sad and so that sits in a piece whether it's you know it's before you've discovered your first um that's the big thing is that huge contrast when you board and you haven't found your uh you know you haven't found one of the first um what are they again the the terminals the terminals yeah like you have the the music 
before you even find your first terminal, which I think the one in Rudania gets me the most on top of the fact that it's pitch black inside. Oh my gosh. Um, so and then cool. opens up as soon as you get the map. Oh my gosh. That is amazing. That is unbelievable on how, how they did that. And then the building of instruments on top of each other as slowly as you continue to find each one. Mixed with like then the feeling of like whenever you move like the beast and they like scream out and like what sounds like pain, but then also yeah. seeing like the scenery. This again, this is why I'm a divine beast defender because <laughs> doing something like moving Rudania and seeing like the whole world turn around you is just like, yeah, it's, it's just a cool experience. It's one of those things that a video game allows you to experience this crazy sensation. And it's just like, I don't know. It's like being on a roller coaster. It's just like really like the way you're able to manipulate these things. Oh, I don't know. They're, I, I want more dungeons like Hyrule Castle, but also like the manipulation of the, these like horrifying, cool looking creatures. Uh, it's bad. It's so cool. <laughs> it, yeah, it's it's hard to contest with it for sure. And I think, I think despite the issue with like similar aesthetics, I think the fact that they have they take they take up a space in the world and the world is still around you when you're in them is uh is a, it's just an incredibly unique element to it. Really, like there's very kind of like Shadow of the very, Colossus type feeling. Yeah, yeah, big time. I think that's that's a remark I've always seen come up as well. And I think with good reason, but it has its own, it definitely is, it's very different from that kind of experience. But the fact that it just takes place in the world, I think is something synonymous with it in a yeah. really, really cool way that just hasn't been like done in the series at all. I think there's been only a couple of times where dungeons have really given you that, that such a strong sense of space like that. And uh, just seeing it done here like this, it just, it really, it does. It adds the atmosphere. It's crazy that like being amidst the world that was, like mostly either in neutral to like kind of like you know like just uh, like have a neutral territory as far as like atmosphere goes, uh, and going to this and it having be having be so haunting is insane. And that just goes without mentioning you know Von Meadow, Veto's music that just reminds me of. Um, I never actually played it, but I listened to a lot of the soundtrack. But Skies of Arcadia has a very similar feel to it. I love just the strings oscillating back and forth and just kind of moving up and down throughout the piece. Man. What a great piece of music. I want to give a shout out to like the hot desert theme. It's like my favorite, just like uh. overworld sort of music. It's, it does a good job of not being so present. Like the cold uh, music can kind of be sometimes where it's like, oh, I know yeah. it's cold. Shut up. <laughs> that does get to me uh, a little a bit. Li yeah, that one gets to me a little bit, but the, the desert one, Oh, it just sounds so mysterious. It's, I don't know. It's really, it's really great. Yeah. And all the remixes, like the Rito Village, Zora's Domain <sighs> is just gorgeous. The best in their class. Yeah. They're amazing. Like, love them. The Champions themes are just, yeah, I mean, they don't, they don't have as much of an opportunity to use music and it's not hitting you as much as it does in other Zelda games, but they really do so well with their opportunities, I think. Like, places that you just like to sit and listen to the music. Yeah. Jump into a different... Well, I think I'll mention even a couple other things. Hateno Village. Gonna go and throw a shout-out for that. I love that. That's a great original theme. Terrytown! Um, I meant to say Terrytown. Terrytown. Ter it's so fun. I, that, that's an earworm. Yeah, that, gets that one stuck gets, gets into you. 
ever, but I love the incorporation of just the instrumentation that shouts out to kind of each of the individual races that are there. Just a really, really cool kind of just harmonizing element. So yeah, sorry. What was your other yeah. one? That just I was that finally that made me think uh, it's here. Oh, I think I mentioned. I think uh, Hateo Village just yeah. is a great original piece, and I love how that plays out. Um, I was gonna mention the the one of the ones that didn't really stick with me as much. And I think it's just because the town itself aesthetically didn't strike me much either. It was probably um, it was just uh, Goron Village, I think, or whatever it's called, Goron City. Goron City. Yeah. Um, it's it's good. It's good, but it doesn't it doesn't strike me as much. I think it was good that they didn't they didn't like do remixes on everything. Yeah. But um, that was one of the things. What was oh, and then Gerudo Gerudo Town is definitely one of my favorite original town pieces, like in the game for sure. Just a Especially the night version. Night version just has a mm-hmm. great, great sense of uh, atmosphere to it, and it helps that the aesthetic of that that town is is very inspired. Just a great look to it. I really like um, the tower music. Oh, you know, it's yes. funny. There's certain music in this game that I think when you first hear it, when you first play it, you don't recognize totally what it's cued by or the difference between it and like the normal music. Like there's music that plays when you're at a shrine and like. That music also depends on what region you're in, but you might not really notice it because of how like subtle the music is in general. But that yeah. tower music is just, it's just very peaceful and it feels very mystical. I really like it a lot. <laughs> yeah. I, um, going into other kind of short atmospheric bits like that, I love, um, first off, like having, having shrine music that kind of tips you off that you're very close to one is cool. Um, my personal favorite has to be, and I don't, I'm not a hundred percent sure on what it's consistently tied to. I think it's shrines located in like caves or behind water, like waterfalls in particular. It has a very Mario galaxy kind of feel to it. And I, it's like the only way I can describe it. And maybe you know what I'm talking about. It has that weird little, like kind of like whimsical synth. That's just kind of moving from one note to the next. Mm-hmm. And the piano chord is kind of doing that. Not a, um, not a glissando, it's not the right word, but it's kind of like moving from like, you know, bottom to top across the chord real quick and playing it out. Oh, arpeggio, arpeggiated? Yeah, like oh. arpeggiated, yeah, like an arpeggiated chord basically. Um, yeah, I I really, I always kind of end up sitting around those shrines for a bit, little bit because I end up just, I really, really uh, like that. I also, I know I just mentioned that Goron City, I find it be just okay, but I really do love the incorporation of the, um, of some of those instruments into the shrine shrine theme in uh, like any of the shrine themes in Death Mountain, I really like just that feel. So that's just super fun. Well, we have to we have to before we move on. For, <laughs> God, yeah. Before we move on uh, to everything else, I, we have to of course also shut out like the main theme. Oh yes, which doesn't really get its play and just kind of existed to be in like trailers and I guess the end credits, but. Oh yeah, and it gets it, the theme gets incorporated a lot. I was so I was so excited, like musically, I was very excited to see that they were kind of moving beyond the idea that they were kind of taking a Skyward Sword and a Link Between Worlds of trying to remix famous pieces, and just they're like, let's just make a really good theme, and it's yeah. just like, dang man. And I think Kondo actually um, he he actually helped with a bit here and there, but I think he actually assisted one of the composers on here with that with that arrangement, which was uh, man. Just a what a great piece of music. Yeah, you really don't get to hear that first part of it. You mostly get to hear the, um, I want to call it the refrain, but that might be musically ignorant. I don't know if what it's actually called, but if you played the game, you know what I'm talking about. That plays during a lot of different bits, or really like when you uh, when you activate a tower. That's like the main 
theme yeah. we'll hear a lot. And it's great. It's it is it is a very striking theme that that manages to both almost weigh you down with the like kind of the despair of the like the kind of the disparity of the situation and yet somehow be hopeful and and also like very thoughtful at the same time. It's like it's kind of hard to describe, but there's just a lot of facets to it and I really love it. Yeah, it's pretty great. Um let's briefly talk about the presentation. Mm. I think the simple answer, well, I don't know. This is just me. I think it's great. I love the cel-shaded kind of in-between mix of like not being super cartoony. Also like realistic proportions. I love like my beautiful soft boiling. <laughs> um, the lighting is just incredible. Oh. The environments don't really photograph very well, but they're really nice when you're playing it. And I would say like one of the biggest weaknesses is like the frame rate and then like the pop in, which can be frustrating for gameplay reasons of yeah. not seeing like mini bosses spawn until you get like way closer to them. And it struggles, uh, especially with the pop in uh, and like seeing things in the distance when it's handheld. Oh, yeah. So I think like those little bit of performance things, like I wish it was souped up a little bit, but I really love the art and the, the decisions and the lighting so pretty yeah i'm i'm with you on that i love i love the aesthetic of this game and i love how they depicted the races i got no problem with it yes i love them all oh my goodness i i to the think point where great. it feels like the rito haven't been just literal bird people this whole time yeah because <laughs> it just feels right i don't know yeah the zora really good i i love i love the gorons i they're um, so cute oh, they're great they're so they've, cute they're their so eyes expressive. are like expressions when oh. you like how, like hold a weapon or something and they're like what what <laughs> so oh i like going up to the the guy who sells the cooked meat and i like just standing on top of his uh grill and he's just like please stop <laughs> <laughs> i love i love their expressions and their gigantic arms and everything and uh just the gorons are great they're 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 really great i love the Gerudo were probably the ones that we that are probably the least exposed like series out there or not series uh, like race out there as far as like getting to really see much of them. You only really get a sense of them in Ocarina and like in a very detached way in Majora's Mask. Yeah, because they're not really yeah, related. Yeah, you only get to shoot them. You don't get to talk to them. Yeah, um, and they don't really have much to say in that matter either. They're they're interesting in concept, um, and they end up they they are very like a lot of the like the same ideas are very much taken into Breath of the Wild's design of them. But they they take I this the idea of just kind of they're really kind of taking like that Amazonian idea and then fusing it kind of with the more like Middle Eastern style at the same time and I just I love the how much culture they kind of like infused yeah. into them yes and just like the town feels really fun to explore because like every room seems to explain something about their culture and I just think that the concept of like this group of women who like like self-sufficient and like educate each other and then like go out into the world you just see that reflected in so many areas and it's just really it's one of the places that feels like most complete yeah out of like all the towns yeah i my favorite you mentioned the educating thing and i love that there's a classroom dedicated so to romance yeah <laughs> that's so cool i think it's so funny that it's just like yep since we effectively the one thing that we actually can't actually do for each other we have to go out to do it's like well yep we're gonna have to relay that experience 
to people we're raising. I'm like, that's, that's awesome. (laughs) (laughs) I think that's, I think that's so cool. So, yeah. yeah. Well, and it's also interesting. You like talk to them and you find out that like, they're like, they like sell goods in town, but like their husbands live out of town and then they like see, it's just like really interesting. Yeah. Yeah. That like a whole bunch of the people at the town actually like are married, (laughs) but they like then still come into like this, you know, very sort of, Almost isolated place. Town. It's yeah. really cool. It's like really considered. Yeah. There's a lot of thought that went into it. And I think it's maybe that's why the Gorons don't strike me nearly as much because there are there are some elements of that to them, but it's just it just doesn't go as deep. And actually actually I think the most revealing or if not concerning thing about Gorons that doesn't answer any questions and Nintendo they have to know it is the Goron that's in Gerudo town. He's like, you know, I'm actually not sure how, why they let me in here. I'm like, wait a sec. What in the world? Yeah. <laughs> how do Gorons reproduce? Yeah. Like they, there's ones where they act, there's like others where it's like, yeah, this is my son. I'm like, um, okay. Oh. All right. Like we might've had to think about this a little bit in Twilight just Princess. Just pretend but I, that they like throw rocks into like the volcano and it just like spits out you Gorons or something. <laughs> yeah. So I, Yeah. I guess tying this back into all the aesthetic. I mean, that is that is a part that contributes to the overall like world of the game. I think, and I really like just the, these characters. I think the only ones that are actually kind of boring are the uh, Hylians. Actually, yeah. they're there's really they're they're not very interesting, and they're not written very interesting most of the time. They don't have. I mean, yeah, they're just kind of like <laughs> just the standard in in the game, and it's like yeah, okay. Um, yeah, so, so it's just kind of like there are people here, like. Llewellyn Village, I think you feel a sense of, like, what that place is. And Kakariko Village definitely has, like, a very rich history. And then Tenno Village is like, we're white! Yeah, I think think the towns at least do better to characterize them a bit more. Um, The state, were you finding them anywhere else, like, around stables or whatever? You're like, okay, yeah. The towns definitely help to kind of do that. And I think they even, like, a lot of them even dress in their own style, like, around those towns. Like, I didn't go around to Llewellyn this time around but i know that like they actually like they have a different complexion and different appearance to them too so they're even even to that extent there was a surprising like amount of thought put into that so when it comes to to character design especially just uh i i love it i really i think i think after <laughs> how dreadful the design was in twilight princess and how kind of like uh like pretty decent skyward sword was they they just had like a greater sense of clarity on what they want to do and what they were yes. like, how like the culture they were. The power to not have them look horrifying. Yes. Thanks to <laughs> everyone looks great. Not so, GameCube. <laughs> which means not a lot of people look scary, but that's, yeah. that's also like, I don't have a problem with that. It's just, it's just, it's great. You still get that like Ocarina of Time silliness in a character like Hudson. Oh yeah. yeah. <laughs> just, uh, I won't. Okay, I'm not gonna make a joke about his head, but oh, we all know it. Yeah, we all know it. Anyways, <laughs> I, I was just like, I was gonna mention, yeah, the hair. I was like, ah, yeah. yeah but he does have a unique way of talking where he's just very simple, and I like it. Yes. <laughs> or even Bolson, for that matter. Oh my goodness. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, he's great. So, yeah, the characters add, they they add a lot for what they are. I'd, I'd especially like to mention just the the introduction of the Yiga clan, specifically that there's Shika. Yes tribesmen that would just straight up betray their own tribe and then form a clan specifically for for killing link is <laughs> is is pretty it's like dang okay i like this they don't they 
I don't think they go enough into it, but for what they give them is really great. Uh, the The obsession with bananas is hilarious. So funny. Um, and I like just the distinction between, uh, well, I love that you just, you, the most surprising thing was just going in the field, talking to a person and they're like, man, I'm just a real are you a big fan of the Yiga clan? You're like, I don't even know what the Yiga clan is. It's like, oh, well, I'm going to take your life. It's like, what? <laughs> Who? Yeah. When I tell you that the when I played this game for the first time, I I meant to go to Kakariko Village, but I accidentally went to Hateno Village. And so I came around to like Kakariko Village, like the back way. So I came around to it uh instead of like being at that stable where you can choose to go to, to hateno or kakariko and like tetsu's uh, right there yeah i didn't get to tetsu until like after going through kakariko village if that makes sense if you've played the game um so on my path like over to kakariko village that's when i first like talked to somebody and was like hey man like what's up and they're like i'm gonna kill you and i was like excuse me <laughs> yeah. i was so it freaked me out uh. I was not prepared. I love their ability to just take a conversation and find a way to make it about taking your life. Even just say this, it's like, I'm going to take your life. I'm like, geez, this is some Zelda 2 stuff in here. Good grief. Yeah. So I, I like that. And I, I would have liked more development on like why, like why they're even doing it in the first place. Why are they serving Ganon? But like just, just their existence, I think adds, adds a lot. It's very unique. Yeah. And, and Kakariko Village having a quest line that actually ties into it, I think is pretty cool too. So with some fairly dark background in its own right. So it's it's pretty good. It's pretty good. And they're just a funny bunch. And I love tossing bananas to them. <laughs> um, you mentioned the lighting as well earlier. And I really, um, I, I completely agree. I love the degree of which they've experimented with it. Just the, just the way that, like a lot of the effects use. I, I particularly, I'm a big fan of just explosions from bomb arrows or explosive barrels in particular have a sense of just a real sense of depth to them. They're also just frighteningly huge. There are so, like even if, even being like 30 feet away from them, you still will take like a heart of like fire damage from the explosion itself. They're They're incredibly threatening and every time i see lizalfos pick up a, like a an explosive barrel i'm like oh my goodness <laughs> i get terrified those explosions are huge and um the just the even just the sheikah slate those bombs in particular as well i i really like just how those look and the kind of clear like, like the clarity of them and yet they have like there's just a lot that goes into it and then going on the lighting itself i love the use of lighting like at night in particular when the moon shines across the grass and you see that I, I really love that effect in particular. Um, and I also love the pitch black lighting. I'm glad like they actually straight up were like, instead of just, oh, cause games that a lot, a lot of times just do dark rooms, it's just annoying to see, but they made it like, I mean, it's it's annoying cause you can't see anything, but they really made it a point of, you literally can't see anything without a source of light. And I love, I love how the lighting, like how the lighting affects and how fire plays into effect with that. Just really cool stuff. Anyway, I just wanted mm -hmm. to mention that really quick. Cause I, <laughs> I thought that was a particularly striking part of the game that they like especially in the dlc found more use for too just ah, it's fun mm -hmm. so i think at this point you should go ahead and move on <laughs> god willing um and i think we have talked about comparison a lot throughout this episode and we could be talking about the entire series for a really long time. And so I think I'm going to wrap it up into one question that I think kind of has us asking, now what does the series do? And also, now that it's gone so far in the opposite direction, moved so far away from older games, when we look back into the series now, what are the things that the series should be pursuing? 
what should it take from these older games? You know, as a lot of people, you know, bemoaned that we may never see a true 2D entry again, uh, back when the 3D games were really hitting their stride. You know, are we going to see an Ocarina, Twilight Princess style of Zelda again? So I guess like, what does a sequel of this game look like? And I'll note that at the time of recording, all we've seen is one story trailer of the sequel. And I also ask this question, not necessarily to predict what this direct Breath of the Wild sequel will be, but what is the future of this series after everything we've seen? Hmm. I will start by saying I have no idea. <laughs> yeah, I was just about to say, I was like, I can't even perceive that. I've had ideas. But I've I'll had... ask you this question first. <laughs> the way that 3D games have been thus far, do we feel like we have enough of them to be satisfied or do we hope that they're going to go back to that, like, quote unquote formula? Or is it, should it be over? Do we just like that because it's nostalgia? Is like what hmm. we're looking at now something better? If I don't know. <laughs> yeah, uh, that's a good question. I think, and I'm trying to make the distinctions in my mind too about this. I think in terms of structure, I almost just, I don't, I don't really want to see, well, more than anything, I don't want to see like the game, the series, like, the game become conventionalized again. I think by the very definition of by being a sequel, there are things that are going to become conventions, at least with its own right as being a sequel, kind of like Majora's Master Ocarina. But part of me wants to wants it to try not to have more structure, but to have more potentially designed areas, more like kind of compact, more detailed areas. I think that I think the reason the Majora's Master Ocarina compares it comes up a lot is for different reasons. And sometimes on a very surface level, it's usually like, oh, aesthetic, it's gonna be like the darker game. And that's not really my concern. I'm interested, I'm interested in, I'm really, I'm genuinely kind of curious as to what's going on there, but I can't even begin to speculate. I don't have any idea. I just hope that the story is like, is effective. I hope that it's more effective. I, I hope it draws upon the entries in the series that have not so much like deep narratives, but so much they've been able to have effective theming. They've had, they've really been able to have effective theming and they've helped you kind of connect with characters and have them stick in your mind in some way or another. And I think that's like, if there's anything that, that a sequel can definitively maybe work on better and try to do better, I think that's one thing. But when it comes into structure, I keep thinking about this. And I just like, I have no idea. Talking to one of my friends about it, you know, that's, he, he was of the mind that it's like, uh, he's like, I really enjoy this, this gameplay loop for what it is. And I just don't know if I can see myself going to something that ends up being more restrictive, even if, if the re end result is a more like, detailed more carefully crafted uh crafted world and that's not to say that breath of the wilds world isn't carefully crafted it's just that by the nature of like even cutting the world size down like you're not in half but to some degree around that and then kind of building around that more in a different kind of way mm -hmm. you know i wonder what it could kind of what it could produce as a result and just thinking about that i'm like uh, like having hearing that from somebody else i'm just like shoot i mean i didn't even think about that because for me it's like yeah i could i could accept a majora's mask-esque kind of you know a game kind of like majora's mask that does that goes for something more like that of course this is not a game that's under a nine to twelve month like restraint or anything like that it's being it's given given proper development times which means it's being you know it's being intentionally thought out but also like there's going to be a lot of effort put into like a lot of complete and total effort put into it over this time frame too so it's just that and i feel like <laughs> asking for a game that's more structured might be tailored to what i might 
like to what I might hope to see out of a Zelda game, but it doesn't one it doesn't guarantee anything, and it might not even be right for what the series like what it's going to be trying to aim for, and it might be end up just falling back into the same rut. The, the main thing is what the structures of previous games like brought out of them. I think were worthwhile, but what they ended up hindering in the process, I think, like in the long term, like as we got later in the series, was was far more detrimental at the end. And I'm wondering if they can strike a balance in a way that still holds true to like the philosophy they're trying to carry on right now while still creating like a more enriching kind of game. Yeah. I think that to me, if you think of the core idea of Legend of Zelda as being like adventuring, exploration, like the core concepts of the original game, I think they like really finally realized that in a 3D space in this game for the first time. Wind Waker, sort of, but the technology wasn't quite there. Here, they finally had the technology at enough of a level where they could achieve that. And so I almost think that while we have been spending many episodes talking about exploration, exploration, holding true to the concepts that, that started with the original game, realizing them, I think now you're looking at a game that did realize those things. And along the way, all of the other games found these other little niches that were also very effective, even if they weren't based on the original concept from 1986. But different things that started to become synonymous with Zelda, you know, like climbing climbing the steps of Ganon's castle and using items and solving puzzles in these specific ways and collecting whatchamacallits and <laughs> having these specific story moments that you always remember, Bongo Bongo, lighting Kakariko Village on fire, just various different things that make an impact on you that you remember. And I think like I would almost equate it that you know, a lot of these 3D games, they're like movies that I love mostly love and can go back to and and play through them. And I might do something, try to do something slightly different or like, you know, sequence break in some way, which is its own sort of specific N64 fun. But you know all the beats and you're going back to revisit them and it's going to play the same way. Yeah. And Breath of the Wild is more of just like a choose your own adventure in that it requires something from you. You can't play the greatest hits in Breath of the Wild because the greatest hits are your own memories you made and you can't rediscover and re-experience them for the first time again. Like you can't play the game without knowing I'm going to decide to turn left here because last time I turned right, but I know what's on the other side on the right side, but I'll go, I'm making a decision to go away from what I know. I make decisions not to climb towers. Yeah. (laughs) So I can sort of be in the dark for longer. Yeah. It's an experience that can't really be replicated. But I guess what I would say with like regards to like the future of the series, I think for me, and I kind of said this a little bit in the intro, I think the appeal for me of the series is that it, it is a series that's trying to live up to some sort of promise that's trying to, even when it was stuck in a rut, was still trying to go grow beyond in whatever way it sort of could, which is like why Skyward Sword is the game that it is, is because they were limited and they said, well, what do we have here that we didn't have before? Let's focus on that. 
And finally here, you know, they got to focus on making a game with this sort of technology and like finally open things up since they've been trying to do for almost 20 years since Wind Waker came out, which is crazy to think about. Um, 18 years, I think. It's it's been a minute since that game came out. And each game, the excitement, I think, of a Zelda game, of playing a new one, of opening up and putting it into whatever console is sort of this dream of what it might be the unknown and then the unknown becomes known and you want another one again because before you play it you can attach any sort of dreams or ideas to the game and i got into this in ocarina of time in our discussion it's why the community around like the beta footage and like data mining, that culture is so huge with that game hmm. because people are wanting to realize their dreams in the world of the game and what they wish for the game to be. It's why I'm still dreaming that there's some way that Zora's domain will unfreeze. It's that <laughs> same way that people dream that you can unlock Sonic in Super Smash Bros. Melee, or the way that people dream that there's some way to bring Aerith back to life in Final Fantasy VII. Spoilers. <laughs> but <laughs> it's hoping that there's something more there. And I think each game you play, the dream changes. <laughs> You get certain pieces of it, but it's now the known and the dream changes. And so Breath of the Wild was in a way the game that I dreamed of. Open world, running around, high production value, love the music, just such a free roaming experience. And then I'm like, well, what is left for me to dream? And I, I can be realistic and say, well, but realistically, what can they really do in a sequel? Like, this yeah. is all extremely complicated stuff. I think we're hitting that point in video games where the dreams are slowly becoming realized, but the work becomes ever more complicated. Yeah. Because now we're going to be asking for things like, I want to be able to build. I want all of this stuff to be interactable. I want to be able to destroy the environment and have it stay that way. Like, I think the things that we are asking from video games now, like they just become more and more complicated. Like we're asking for video games to be a fake version of our world that has all of like the intricacies of it. But people also have to program that stuff. And I think that we, I think growing up playing video games, you said to yourself for a long time, I just want them to be high def. I just want them to like look awesome. And and we're at that point where you're starting to ask yourself, you know, as we're on the precipice of the of the PS5 coming out of the new Xbox, can't remember what they're calling that one. Silly name? Silly name? Who cares? The Xbox know. is coming out. <laughs> um, and we're asking ourselves now with like how beautiful games already look on the PS4 and on the Xbox One, Um, obviously Nintendo is still working on that, but they did something else (laughs) incredible, which is like put a game like Breath of the Wild in the palm of your hands, which is crazy. Um, you know, now we're asking ourselves what is beyond the pretty filter now, what is next now? How can games be bigger and better? And even if the technology can handle it, at what point can people not build these things? Because we are asking the people who design video games to be gods, yeah. <laughs> to like be all-knowing, all-powerful gods who can create these worlds in which you don't see any sort of seams, you know, like in which 
when I talk to someone in Breath of the Wild and walk away, I don't see like their walk cycle repeat when I like turn to the left and see them walking up again. That it feels like they pop in and out, you know, or they appear at certain places whenever I walk in, but they, they aren't on their own cycle of their own. Like I can see the little bit of cracks. I appreciate in a game like Breath of the Wild that the game does not feel tailored to the player in which um, I've, I've seen and watched video of Red Dead Redemption 2, which I think it struggles a bit more of like making it feel like you're the center of this power fantasy, like Westworld theme park sort of thing Hmm. of like that, that the people in the game are really catering to you. And I I don't think you get that so much here. It just kind of feels like you just stumble upon things, Yeah, but it's still not unique enough in its instances or pays off enough in a long run when you save people from like folk goblins for it to feel that level. Anyways, this is all to say that when I dream of the next Zelda game, I will try to just start setting up even loftier dreams and not, I'm so scared of what the sequel will be because I'm scared that it it won't be enough or I just don't know what the next game looks like because I guess the other thing is they built this huge world and you cannot explore it again. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) But it's the world. But it's not like you can just put new things in it. Maybe you can. Maybe you can put enough new things. But the joy of the game to me was not of exploring a new world and not knowing what was going to be ahead of me, not knowing what was in the distance. And so for me, I don't want to say that the game has become disposable, but that it can't really be reused to me because that was the core joy of the game was having this thing given to me and and me slowly digesting it and so I really think that the way to go and it kind of is the Majora's Mask blueprint is to focus on interactivity with people and go like Dragon Quest Builder style with it um I want a rebuilding Hyrule game yeah um but Hmm. something that focuses on that you know, you've spent all this time on this physics engine. Now can you apply that to like the personal relations in this universe of having those all connect to each other and having those all feel meaningful? I think of, um, if anyone has seen uh, the anime Knights of Sidonia on Netflix, uh, it's not really good and it will let you down. But the <laughs> best thing that show does is it has a really, really interesting like city space station world moving through space. And I think about grandiose like cities, like if the Hyrule town that was de- the Hyrule Castle town that was demolished a hundred years before the start of this game, if that place existed, it would be like massive. Yeah, it'd be like incredible to experience. And so I guess I want to see them try to take on that challenge next, and that now has become the new <laughs> Zelda game I I dream of, <laughs> like a Zelda game where my heroics impact people and where things change. And I want to play the kind of Zelda game where after all of my troubles, Zora's domain finally becomes unfrozen. (sighs) But anyways, I think we should go ahead and, and wrap it up and talk about what we remember the most. I'll start. I have a couple of things. And after everything we've said about this game, there's not going to be any like singular moment of what's, what is going to be 
something that marks the experience of the game itself. Like, you know, we've said for so many of the game, these games, it was the ending or the beginning of the game that, that, that really got us in some capacity or another. And that's not really the case here. Uh, I mean, I do, I like the opening of the game in its own. I mean, there's a lot to be said about the great plateau, uh, playing it the third time around and just knowing it. I'm like, yeah, uh, this is, I mean, it's, it's a great tutorial. Um, and I think even the first time playing it incredibly memorable for me, especially once you have, you know, 60, plus hours under your belt with this game. That's something that just kind of fades into the rest of the experience. And I think it's just, there's little moments that come here and there um, that I think stick in my mind. And some of them gameplay related and some of them, well, related to music. I mentioned the musical transitions earlier. And I think it really, it happened to me both in Gerudo Town and in Rito Village. And they're just things that stuck out to me so much um, as just being, there's just moments that happen because you're in town at that time of day and it happens to transition. And I just find stuff like that that happens so organically to be such a just a strong mark of the game's uh of the game's strengths so those were just at least on an atmospheric standpoint something that really stuck out to me gameplay wise i i mean there's just there's just lots of little moments little things that just they they are able to happen because of the way the game is designed even where it's even where we like kind of cheese the combat and whatnot there's still times i have that it's just like oh i didn't know you could do that or (laughs) or other things like uh, lining line of sighting a uh, Lizalfos that's holding a, an explosive barrel and he just throws it against a wall. <laughs> I, I still remember. I mean, I did that fairly recently, but that really just moments like that where it's just like in a mo- midst of panic. I'm like, I wonder if I can force him to make a really terrible choice, and I did, <laughs> and I got I got such a kick out of that. Um, it's just little moments like that or finding out you can, you know, headshot an enemy, close in on them, even making all the noise in the world, and then they won't remember your position. They'll only know where you were struck from. Just thing, things like that, I, they they uh, stick with me, at least until they become too exploitive, then they then they get a little, it's just like, oh, well, this kind of stinks now because I've kind of broken the game a little more. But it's just, it's fun. It's fun to push back against this game and figure out what you can do with it. And there's, I know there's still tons of stuff I've never even actually thought about that's just weird or funny to try. And that's without getting into people who have actually done videos specializing in all the weird quirks that you can do to actually do some very cool things with combat that are just kind of beyond <laughs> my ability. I just, just those little moments of discovery and things like that, I think stick out. And even if they may fade into the greater experience, I think overall, it's like, yeah, maybe this game doesn't strike me in the way that, you know, Majora's Mask or Wind Waker does. I I can't, like, say, oh, it's a top 10 game. I just, I love, I love playing this game. I just play it, and I'm like, I'm just happy to be playing it. It's just, that's, I think, the most important thing about it. And I, it's those, just all the moments that kind of add up the collective experience, I think, that just, that's what I remember about it. I think for me, like... And I talked about this a lot, and I'll always tell people stories of my first playthrough of this game. I mean, it's a few different things. It's the fact that it also uh, corresponded with me getting a Switch, which I adore and love and hmm. hug every night. And getting to Kakariko Village and like sitting in bed and just like continuing to play the game because I just like didn't want to let it go. I remember uh, being... At some point on, you know, maybe near like Hateno Village or something, I think, um, yeah, I think I was off in like the research lab and there's this cliff that reaches out into the ocean with a shrine at the end. Hmm. And I looked at that and I was like, I want to go over there. 
And I went on this huge journey, took me around so many places, took me much longer <laughs> to get over there than I anticipated. But I just remember the feeling of like beating the Bokoblins that were like entrenched there that I think were like a little too difficult for me. It was like the first time I saw shock arrows and like getting up to that shrine and like looking at this cliff and it just... It just was so immersive and just like so exhilarating. And then I think I flew out to Eventide Island after that. And I didn't have very many hearts and it was very difficult um, and very tough. But it just, I don't know. It's like, it's like when I think about it, it's like I'm personally there on that cliff. It's like I can feel like the wind blowing through my hair. Like it's a place that I like traveled to. Hmm. And I just think about that. And then the other thing I think about is um, the first time I played the game, <laughs> the way that I got to Zora's Domain, <laughs> I talked to Sidon and like got to the mouth of the river and I just remember him being like, oh, just so you know, like there's going to be some shock arrows, so maybe just like be careful. It's going to be a little challenging. I was like, well, I don't have any hearts. That sounds like a little too much challenge for me. So <laughs> I, I went away. I ended up climbing all of these rocks and I don't know what possessed me to do this. <laughs> I think I like was on like Lanero Mountain and I saw uh, one of like the dam like edges of Zora's Domain. I can't remember which specific one, but you can see it in the distance. And it's just this weird thing that like has these strange blue colors and reflects light in a different way. And I just thought that's very strange because I, I didn't really know what Zora's Domain looked like. And so I was like, what is that? And I'm like, I'm going to just like go over there and see how it goes. And of course I get over there and like the rain from Ruta is falling. And instead of going like, I should stop doing this. I just painstakingly climbed <laughs> every little crag I could, had as much stamina stuff as I could handle. I had put all of my energy into upgrading my stamina because I did not know that you needed hearts for the Master Sword. So I had to get so many shrines in order to finally get the Master Sword because I put everything into stamina. And... I just remember like crawling around and like climbing all over these places and getting to the top of that Lionel mountain with all the shock arrows and being like, whoa, this is weird. And then getting off to the tip and then seeing like Ruta and Zora's Domain for the first time. Hmm. And then I flew into Zora's Domain and I just like skipped over the entire <laughs> river portion like completely on accident. <laughs> It wasn't until like a second playthrough that I like finally actually. No, I think I even still then went in the wrong way. This playthrough, I went the right way and went the whole time. Um, but it was just so silly and it was just so absurd. But it was also very unexpected. And I'll just remember the memories I made during the game. The first time I saw this Lionel and Alcala and was like, what the heck is that? And was terrified. <laughs> You know, there's all these little things that you don't get to experience things like that in a game very often where you get to have like those organic little experiences that are just for you that you won't really be able to recreate like that again. Hmm. And I wish I could go back and play it again for the first time, but I'm at least finding a new way to enjoy it this time, like actually trying to fill out the Hyrule Compendium and enjoying like trying to see everything there is to see and like document it has been really fun. But yeah, I just, there will be nothing like that ever again.
So that concludes our first season of a Retro Perspective podcast. Thank you so much to everyone who listened. We had a great time playing video games, recording, and making this podcast. When the sequel to Breath of the Wild eventually comes out, we'll of course do another episode on that. We may also do bonus episodes. I've been saying we need to do a Star Fox Adventure episode for a while. And we'll also be looking at taking on different series, 3D Mario games, God willing, God help us, Final Fantasy at some point. So please subscribe to us, keep us on your radar, and we'll see you again soon.